chain letters don't work. It's a known fact. The million dollars or so you are promised if you'll just send one single dollar to the name at the top of the list, add yours to the bottom, and then send the letter on to five friends, never arrives. This one, the Captain Trips chain letter, worked very well. The pyramid was indeed being built, not from the bottom up, but from the tip down, said tip being a deceased army security guard named Charles Campion. All the chickens were coming home to roost. Only instead of the mailman bringing each participant bale after bale of letters, each containing a single dollar bill, Captain Trips brought bales of bedrooms, with a body or two in each one, and trenches, and dead pits, and finally bodies slung into the oceans on each coast, and into quarries, and into the foundations of unfinished houses. And in the end, of course, the bodies would rot where they fell. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, Bill, we've made a terrible decision to read Stephen King on the internet. Uh, this week we're doing <laughs> this week, this month, whatever it is, we're doing The Stand by Stephen King, which is uh, approximately the size of two or three Bibles. Um, and so, usually in this part, we try and do an introduction of characters and everything else. But I just want to. I just want to say we're not going to do a full overview of everything in the stand, but uh, maybe, Bill, you want to give it a shot as far as, like, the bare bones, what we read? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, some big reads are bigger than other big reads, and this big read is approximately the size of our previous big reads stapled together. My copy runs at 1,153 pages, and I think that's actually, there, there are copies that look longer. Um, so, yeah, very bare bones. The stand is originally written in 1978. Uh, or published rather in 1978, but then he added another 100,000 words, or more accurately, he put back in 100,000 words that had been taken out for the initial publication uh, for a second publication in about 1990, which is, I think, the version most people have actually read at this point, and that's the right. one we read. Um, the gist of it is that a military science lab is engineering a you know, super flu, and they goof up, and it gets out and wipes out 99% of the population of the world. Um, or certainly at least of America, but it's implied the 99% of the population of the rest of the world as well. Some 1% of people are immune to it for some reason, which is never really explored, which is probably smart. Um, <laughs> so we go through the plague hitting hitting the country. We, we see it happen to the friends and loved ones of a lot of people. Um, and then the survivors in the second and third parts of the book uh, find themselves being sort of psychically called into sort of two camps. One camp of basically just the good guys, headed by a 108-year-old black woman named Mother Abigail. Um, where they, they start out in Nebraska and then, then set their flag up in Boulder. And then the other camp centered around um, somebody who, who might be the devil, or he might be the, the demon legion from the Bible, or he might be something else, uh, who's called Randall Flagg. And he sets them up in Las Vegas, and that's where all the bad guys go. And, uh, yeah. I mean, the book's pretty clear that that's more or less exactly how it is. You got your good people in Boulder and your bad people in Las Vegas, and they will eventually sort themselves into that way. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about probably is whether we think that's compelling. 
But that's honestly about as much as I can give you of the book at this point, because it hops around between so many different characters and so many different places that, you know, it would be pretty, pretty tedious for us to sit here, recap the whole book, and then still have to recap what happened with that character when we talk no, about no, him I, or her later. No, I, I think that's an amazing recap. It's way better than I could have given. And so I think, I actually, but I, where I want to start, so Stephen King, I feel like, the problem with Stephen King is that he's such a phenomenon, right? So it's never, like, we can't just talk about The Stand, I feel like, without first maybe even talking about um, our background with Stephen King and maybe how, like, maybe, like, what preconceptions we came to this book with. Because I feel like he's one of these writers where um, a lot of people love him, you know, but, like, a lot of people I respect, sometimes they love him like he's a guilty pleasure. He's one of those weird, he's one of those weird touch points, right, or um, for uh, the genre versus literary fiction debate, which is like a really tedious debate. But I do think he's interesting as far as like, you know, what do we want from art or books? Or what do we, you know, what are we looking for when we read a 1400 page novel about a 108 year old black woman fighting a demon in Nevada? (laughs) Um, But I know, so I just maybe, so the first question, sorry, it's just like, so like, I mean, we both, I think you suggested this book, um, if I remember correctly. So I'm just curious, like, what, what your background with Stephen King was. And if, I don't know, I, I have some, honestly, Bill, like, I, got, I have some apprehensions about, like, posting this online because I feel like Stephen King fans are very intense about him being amazing. And, of course, the, the literary snob community is very intense about, like, him not being amazing. And so I'm not worried about them so much as the Stephen King fans pointing out that, like, well, I see you don't know Randall Flagg has a history in the Dark Tower. I, and it's, yeah. I don't. I, I know nothing about Randall Flagg except for this book. So Yeah, so I definitely think uh, – he even talks about in his preface to the book I have that he doesn't think The Stand is his best book, but it's the one that people love the most – um, other than maybe Dark Tower now, since it's right. Um, and I, that's certainly been my sort of understanding of the culture is that The Stand is like King's masterpiece and the the one that, uh, you know, the one to read if you really want to get at Stephen King, the, the writer at his best. Um, but my experience with Stephen King is not much. I have actually not read <laughs> any other Stephen King other than the first, like, chapter of The Gunslinger which I bounced off of for reasons that probably had less to do with the book and more to do with just what I was doing at the time. Um, But you can't evade Stephen King's influence on the culture, I think particularly if you grew up when we did, or a little before. Um, Here's a list of things Stephen King wrote. Uh, Ready? Yep. These are just the big ones. So Stephen King wrote The Stand. He wrote The Shining. He wrote Carrie. He wrote Pet Cemetery. He wrote Cujo. He wrote Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and he wrote the story The Body, which became the basis of Stand By Me. Um, <laughs> Stephen King wrote everything. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to measure like importance in a writer, but if like import and influence on pop culture is your barometer, I'm not sure there's a more important latter 20th century writer than Stephen King. Um, he's just all over everything, way beyond just horror, which is what we sort of think of him as writing. You know, the Shawshank Redemption isn't a horror movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and let's actually, I want to stay at that level for a little bit if we can. So, because, and I'll bring him up and then put him to the side. Harold Bloom, who's like the literary snob snob of all time. Yeah. He, he is a Yale professor and he, he's written some very important stuff. Um, and I don't, I don't despise him as much as some people do. <laughs> Although he does drive me, he does drive me a little crazy. But um, so he he talks about um, Stephen King uh, being 
that he'll be remembered as a sociological phenomenon more than as a writer and i think there's some truth that as far as like um like you just listed the various things that he's known for and honestly like in my life even now having read the stand i still feel like um the pop culture influence that is not actually stephen king books themselves have still probably influenced me as like a as an American who enjoys things more than the stand did. Do you know what I mean? Like I, like, yeah. like I, you know, the shining stand by me for sure, but not just that, but like all the ways in which Stephen King has been ripped off sometimes by people who are maybe better than Stephen King at doing Stephen King. You know what I mean? Like that he's in, like, and he's I, not that that's, that's, that's a little shocking, I guess, but I'm, I'm thinking of even like um, stranger things, which is just totally a rip off of all Stephen King stuff. But it's more fun than almost any Stephen King ad- adaptation of actual Stephen King work. Do you know what I mean? It, oh, I forgot it. I forgot it. What I was listing things. It is also very important. Sorry. Well, yes, of course, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's let's and actually let's take a second to say that like uh, so I saw the new it and it was pretty good. But um, nothing is scarier than Tim Curry and clown makeup. That's not going to like like making. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's it's so much more scary to have a normal but not normal looking person speaking with his voice. Than it is to have like a guy with rows of teeth. They messed up. They messed up the clown. Well, I haven't I haven't seen the new it, and I haven't seen the old it in a thousand years. So I'm gonna I'm gonna abstain from that conversation. <laughs> but you know, but Tim, you could agree on Curry principle. Was, yeah, Tim Carry on principle. <laughs> I've seen the pictures of uh, I can't remember his name, but the the guy in the in the new clown makeup with the the horrible teeth, and yeah, it's unnerving. But yeah, nothing beats like Tim Curry in a sewer wearing just regular clown makeup with sort of a grainy. Was that early '90s uh, right. film camera just sort of mugging for the camera and horrifying this poor child? Like that's well, it's and, pretty hard to beat that. <laughs> and also, the other thing is that I, mean, I haven't read it, and actually, I don't think I have a lot of interest in reading it. So people can you know throw their literary stones at me as as they need. But like, um, I from what I understand, even based on the movie, is that like you know he's a clown to attract kids to him. You mean like what yeah. kid is going to be attracted to Bill Skaz? I think it's Bill Skarsgård. I don't know. His yeah, name. I think that's right. Like who's going to be attracted to him with rows of sharp teeth? Whereas Tim Curry can at least like he has those amazing eyes that can light up or then go very dark and evil. Like that's you know like he actually can attract a child and then <laughs> you know and then be the evil Tim Curry that we all know and love from like. Richie Rich, isn't it Richie Rich? Anyway, I, he's in a lot of things. <laughs> he's the demon anyway. in uh, Legend, which is that movie that's otherwise not particularly important, where Tom Cruise <laughs> plays a fantasy hero. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, that was a better. That's a better reference. Also a great film. Anyway, okay. So anyway, so my experience with Stephen King is very similar. Um, I uh, I read Dark Tower. I didn't like it actually. I, I the set actually would put me off of Stephen King, as everyone told me to read the Dark Tower series. And I thought the first book wasn't very good. And I actually, I, I, I think I liked The Stand, but I stand, I, <laughs> I definitely stand by my opinion that the, the first Dark Tower book is not great. Um, but in college, in like my in a writing seminar, it was funny because one of the books assigned was his memoir about writing, Stephen King. Yeah. And it's in, in you know, the, the professor talked about it. She's like, you know, every time I assign an excerpt or the whole book, Everyone in this kind of program, you know, makes fun of Stephen King or like laughs and then they read it and they all love it. And so I I will say, like, even before I read his fiction again, which this is the first time I've read him since The Dark Tower, he kind of won me over as like I've had like a grudging distant respect because his writing memoir is awesome. And not only talks about like the way in which he is serious about craft, um, whatever you think of his prose, he is serious about trying to make it, you know, excellent prose. 
Um, but also, like, he really had to figure out how to be a writer without destroying his life repeatedly, you know, which is a diff different topic because he has, you know, all kinds of battles with um, abuse, substance abuse in his past. But even little things like he first got famous or got some money and he, like, put a big desk in the middle of his family room, like, I'm going to be a writer. And he's like, of course it didn't work. It didn't work until I had a little desk in the corner and my life was my life and the writing was on the margin, which is crazy for someone who's written as much books as he's written, you know what I mean? To say that it was still a marginal thing compared to his family life. Yeah. So, so yeah. So no, I, so my experience is kind of like, I've been wary of him artistically, but I, but kind of like, because of his memoir, I, I, for a while now, I've known I would have to read him and kind of reckon with, with, you know, with his influence. Yeah. I think there's no ignoring Stephen King, at least right now, in terms of his influence on, on genre fiction in particular, but just in general in American culture in particular, I, uh, I, I'm sympathetic to the point that he's probably more of a sociological phenomenon, you know, 100 years from now. People will probably not read The Stand or whatever for, like, the reason we read Middlemarch now, right? But they'll read it to understand why everyone was talking about Stephen King so much and why you could just make references to things and everyone knew what it was about, even if they didn't necessarily realize it was Stephen King, you know? like right. There's the the Rick and Morty episode where they do the Needful Things parody with all of with, with the shop that uh, you know yeah. only sells sort of cursed items, and I didn't realize that was a Stephen King reference. That was just an idea that existed in the universe, you know. And, and he wasn't the first person to do something like that, but he was certainly one of the bigger ones, right? <laughs> well, so. he does, that's, that's true. I think I do think so many of the ideas that sometimes like he almost gets too little and too much credit. I think you're totally right because some of the stuff he comes up with it does seem really original. But a lot of times, I think that he's such a fan of genre fiction that he takes an idea he likes and he just kind of repeats it, sometimes to death, but sometimes to the extent that it becomes almost an essential version of the thing that he used to love, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I think in The Stand, and actually, I didn't like this part, he, he really riffs on the Eye of Sauron, and we can come back to that. Yes. But, like, he, <laughs> he's very intentionally trying to, like, you know, mimic this sort of post-apocalyptic Lord of the Rings journey thing and 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 to the extent that it's successful it's his best book and maybe that's true I haven't read other books but like you know I think that also it's a it's a dangerous thing to be someone trying to essentialize you know a, a certain move that's been done in the past right like how do you essentialize you know a haunted house story and yet Shirley Jackson I think is an example of someone who maybe did right she has like the essential haunted house story yeah, I actually um, just read The Haunting of Hill House, like, a few days ago, and uh, it's a real good book. <laughs> it's so good. So, sidetrack side to this, and sorry for people listening who want to hear about The Stand, is, in The Haunting of Hill House, Bill, is there a poltergeist or not? What do you think? Well, so that's the question, right? Is I mean, there's definitely something happening. The question is, is it something in Hill House, or is it something Eleanor brought with her, I think is the more interesting question. I think it's I, improbable yeah. that there's nothing going on, um, you know, unless all four of them are having sort of shared hallucinations. Right. But I don't know. I think um, I think it's so smart that the book sort of asks those questions, but then doesn't give satisfying answers to any of it. It's such a good book because it's a psychological portrait of Eleanor. It's not about the house at all, actually. Um, the house is a set piece for Eleanor to finally sort of lose her marbles. Um, right. And it's so good because we don't, why is there a cold spot in the nursery? Who cares? Like, which is right. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care about that. Not really. Um, why, no, you know, I agree. Well, yeah. I don't know. I haven't fully cohered my thoughts about that book yet because I, I just read it and it's short and there's a lot going on. I think if I was going to give it my, my most sort of 
genre fic magnifying glass read, I'd say that there's something in the house which is sort of amplifies the innate weirdness of Eleanor. That's what I'd say is it's a bit of both. But no, and I I think I think that's probably that's probably like on evidence that probably is how I think the best reading comes out. I totally agree. But what you said is actually maybe not a terrible tran- transition to actually talking about Stephen King a little more, which is that. Um, Shirley Jackson's 100% using the haunted house gothic motif to really delve into this, you know, this woman's psyche, um, right? Like, it's, it's a character study, you know, which is usually so... Literary fiction, someone once told me, which I think this is about right, literary fiction is a genre. It's simply the genre in which the action is primarily about the deterioration of either the family or the self. And by family, it means, like, relationships of some kind, right? So married people, people in love, an actual family, or the self, and usually both. And so I think that's right. I think literary fiction is totally a genre with with certain rules that people follow, whether they know it or not. And um, I think, you know, what makes Stephen King interesting is that he really chafes against, like, he has been on record as saying, you know, he doesn't like that he is ignored by the higher-ups of literary criticism right um that he's happy for his commercial success but he basically thinks you know being called genre or lowbrow means that too many people like your art that's the only problem he has right and i don't think that's quite correct but i i do think why he feels frustrated is because based on the stand alone um and maybe we can talk about franny um as as a good entry point into this he he really is interested in writing like strong point of view fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like where the fiction is sort of yeah, it's plot driven and yet it's so grounded in this person's reactions and, you know, struggles and whatever that it, it it's all about interiority, which is sort of the the hallmark of good literary fiction. And so I don't know, I don't know if you were surprised at how much it was character driven this book or you know, yeah, what you thought about that. Yeah, so I think you know, this book is more interesting if you read it as a as a literary project as well as like a genre project. It's not particularly compelling as post-apocalyptic fiction in the sense of, you know, I'm looking for them scrounging through the trash cans, looking for, you know, bits and bobs and MacGyvering their way out of situations. It's not really concerned with that exactly. Right. It's much more concerned with the breakdown of like society as a concept. And so we get chapter after chapter of the town hall in Boulder trying to figure out how to do governance and stuff like that. Um, and, and you have several chapters about Franny, like you said, which I think if you just pull them out, they do okay as just lit fic short stories without any other context. When she first goes in... So Franny is um, one of the four main point of view characters in the book. Uh, the book is always third person, and it jumps around between a lot of people, but there's sort of four people who, who get more time than anybody else, and that's Franny Goldsmith, Stu Redman, Nick Andros, and um, uh, Larry Underwood. Larry Underwood, Yeah. Uh, Franny is, of course, the only woman the book really spends any time with, which we're going to come back to later. I have many thoughts about this book and sort of modern PC concerns, which I think are very important, but I don't want to get too tied up on them because they're very valid criticisms, but also kind of the most obvious criticisms, if that makes sense. Um, And therefore not maybe quite as interesting. But Franny uh, is a college student in Maine, uh, and she's pregnant, it turns out, uh, sort of accidentally with uh, a boyfriend who is absolutely not going to really be in the picture and who dies of the plague pretty early. Presumably, we don't actually see him die, but he seems to have vanished off the face of the earth. And so there's a whole chapter when she goes and tells her father, who's much older and this kind of main, I don't even know, like, you know, I think he's a mechanic at the factory, you know, and she goes and tells her father about the fact that she's pregnant and it's just their conversation and that's the whole chapter. And there's nothing about that chapter which is about 
you know, plagues or confrontations between um, the devil and the angels. Uh, and I think he writes that kind of thing because he is concerned with kind of a literary project. He wants us to really understand, you know, who Franny is as a person, even if he mostly doesn't do much with her for the latter half of the book. Um, and I think, like I said, I think if you pulled that chapter out, it would look quite at home amongst a lot of the other short stories that are out there. You know, I don't think it would be one of the best short stories in the world or anything, but I think you could sell it to a literary magazine just fine. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, no, and I think, um, and I was, I, mean, I will say like, I, I mean, this is my own bias working against him. I mean, I was surprised at how, almost to be honest, how much he overwrote characters. And I don't mean overwrote just like that he, he did, he went too far and kind of curdled them with information, although he does do that. He does. But I think, yeah, but I think it was so clear early on that this was a story about people. And it was also a story about, like, this is this is where Stephen King is hard because it's almost like how you approach him, right? So if you give him all the benefit of the doubt in the world, and if you yourself are smart and like symbolism, you can sort of make a great argument for why he's this, like, secret subtext genius. Because, so, like, and, and all, not just subtext, but that he's doing something super smart symbolically because you mentioned the four main characters. They're all sort of like these these very, not stereotypical, but sort of quintessential heartland American types, right? So we have like New York City from Larry Underwood and we have Texas from Stu Redman and we have like the Nor you know New England from Franny. Um, and then Nick Andros is sort of, you know, I guess he's the Midwest, right? He's from, I think he's from the Midwest. And so you have these... Um, you have these sort of like very like very uh, concentrated Americana locales. You know what I mean? Like when you think of yeah. like America, sometimes it's helpful. With like some some places in America have these you know characters to them that feel maybe quintessential to some of our history. In New England, Texas, and New York City are like that's two. That's like like three of the big ones, right? You know? Yeah. And Larry Underwood's also in California. I don't know. He's, he's just doing so. He's clearly using these characters and using the post-apocalypse to talk about Americana and the clash of values and how the clash of values are all sort of, you know, they're like culturally propagated. They're not essential in the way we think they're essential, right? So like Franny, basically, she's pregnant, right? And uh, this conversation she has with her dad is like, am I going to keep the baby? Am I going to get an abortion? And the dad's like, definitely don't get an abortion. And she's like, I think I might want to keep him, but is that insane? But of course, the apocalypse happens, and all of a sudden, like you know, now it like I think Stephen King is trying to say, like, look, some of this debate is a privilege, right? It's a privilege of excess. Like if we're on the the brink of the species dying, you know, maybe abortion is not a discussion of morality, but of survival, right? And so um, I think that's all really smart, and yet at the same time, like. I think it loses some of his intelligence because he he just keeps slapping you with the meaning of things. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like, like I can't read about one character developing without that character either reflecting on how they've developed or on someone else being like, "Well, who would have guessed that Nick Andros, a deaf mute, would be so powerful with ideas?" And it's like, no, I I got that. I was already aware that that was like a cool subversion of our expectations, and but the subversion is totally unraveled. By Stephen King just being like, "Did you see this? Did you see what I'm doing here? Did you see did what you I did? Me? Yeah, <laughs> no, he definitely like. There's a whole chapter, a whole section early on when Franny has met up with Stu and is, and Harold and is sort of wandering through the wilderness when um, she has a sort of reflection on why you know, for lack of a better word, like feminism is a is a great thing in you know 1990, but doesn't really work in the Stone Age where they are right now, which is just very like we can talk 
again, about the value of the ideas, but also I got that from these other conversations. Sort of like, you've shown us this already pretty well, actually, in some ways, the way some of these people have kind of devolved into kind of pairing off into, you know, finding a man for protection and so on, and it's ways that are at least believable, but then we also have Franny say, boy, we sure seem to have paired off and are now finding men for protection, and (laughs) that's weird. (laughs) Yeah, all right, Fran, I got it, Steve. Well, and it's even even worse, because I feel like, and this is what's hard about Stephen King's, I think he... So I think what drives him crazy is that he has such good execution. Like, like you said, a lot of times he is doing really amazing development in action. Um, I just think he does too much explaining afterward. But he also, like, the ideas at play are interesting. So, like, my sister went to the military academy, right? Where it's just, like, 70% women. And so she had a boyfriend the entire time she was there. And they broke up immediately afterward. And, like, she genuinely liked him. But she's talked about, which, sorry, sister, if you listen to this, but she's talked about, like, part of... The instinct to have a boyfriend in a military academy is not for protection per se, but it's just to fly under the radar. Do you know what I mean? Like you're just not yeah. as noticed if you're like a 17% of the population. And also, you know, if there's violence in the world, it usually seems to be men against men or men against women. And so there's a way in which she was able to like camouflage herself, right? Um, and but like, but the, like Stephen King doesn't even say it that well, right? He doesn't even talk about camouflage or about like the various ways in which my sister like still completed her military course. Like it didn't like subvert her agency to pair off in a survival situation. And I think the problem that Stephen King has is that you know when he wants to do some of this symbolism stuff or like have the characters describe what's happening, the characters are like, are they're never wrong. You know what I mean? Like Franny doesn't misdiagnose what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> like yeah. she should, no, you know, like, yeah, like she should be messing up her, you know, her analysis of the world at some point, but she, Larry, whoever else, they're never wrong. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about the way he writes this book is he's got a really strong, like voice for Stephen King in it. Like he, he, he doesn't literally say, I think this at any point, but there's very clearly a narrator who is like, he, he's an omniscient, you know, he's not, he's not a person in the story, but he'll give you information out of order and stuff like that. Right. Like a couple different times, a character wanders off on a quest and Stephen King will look at you and say, and they never saw him again. Uh, <laughs> and I'm yeah. sort of ambivalent about that uh, because on the one hand, I kind of like sort of acknowledging the, the fact that this is a story and that it's, you know, it makes it a bit more personal in some ways. And another time, like, I got it. Like, towards the end of the book, four of the characters are sent on this sort of pilgrimage out west. Mother Ab- Abigail has, the, the old old woman has died and has given them a sort of divinely inspired go west to Las Vegas unarmed without carrying anything. There you will meet Randall Flagg and something will happen. I don't know what. This is your mission from God, right? And right. it's pretty clear that Mother Abigail is the is speaking as as the you know as a prophet here right like stephen king occasionally tries to be like oh maybe she's just crazy but clearly that's not the case like <laughs> no like, yeah she's definitely uh, a prophet speaking the word of god <laughs> and so they all four do this and um about halfway through the trip Stu redmond uh, rolls a one on an athletics check and falls down a hill and breaks <laughs> his leg and they have nothing they can do about it and they were also told that one of them wouldn't make it to las vegas so they leave him behind after much wailing and gnashing of teeth um and what i thought was actually a pretty good couple of scenes I but agree. then as they're walking away it's just like and they never saw Stu redmond again <laughs> like no i know <laughs> like i get it that either Stu's gonna die or they're, or they're gonna, gonna die. die, or at least somehow yeah. get set. Like I understood what this meant, Steve. I didn't need this. Like <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and especially because I, I think at, at those times the problem is that he's. 
like, I think sometimes he, he thinks he's, and this is, I mean, he's a genius, he's smarter than I am, whatever, but, like, I do think sometimes he thinks he's being ironic or clever, and, and this is the great, I told you this in the last podcast, I get a preview, everyone knew it was coming if they listened, this guy, I'm not sure he should have put the 100,000 words back in, I'm not sure he, he needed, you know, as much as he originally published, because I, I, I think he has a, a mechanism or whatever, a strategy that actually reminds me of, of all people Donna Tart. have you read her? Um, uh, no, I don't believe I have. Yeah, so she wrote The Secret History. She wrote The Goldfinch, which was big a few years ago. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and she's actually, like, she, like she, she's kind of divisive because some literary people think she's the bee's knees, right? Other people think she's writing bad Victorian fiction in the modern age. Um, <laughs> I'm somewhere in the middle. I think some of her stuff's really compelling. I think some of her stuff's really annoying. But the what they what she does that he also does is they both try to, like, make a scene or an event seem important by just giving you everything about it. And they do it intelligently. They always do it from a point of view that it is, you know, centered on a character. So it's a unique point of view. That is smart. But, like, so the first part of um, The Goldfinch is this kid wandering through an art museum that's going to have a bomb go off. But I, I remember reading it the first time, and it was like it was like 45 pages of him looking at art and thinking about his mom and stuff. You know what I mean? And it was at some point, like... It was driving me crazy, but I think that he and, or sorry, Donna Tartt and Stephen King had the same impulse, which is like, I've got it, like, all good literary art is complicated, right? It has layers, it has different things going on at once. Well, one way to give an appearance of complexity is for there to be a lot that seems to be going on. And I think my problem with Stephen King is like, sometimes what's actually going on is just him, right? He's just talking forever. As opposed to like, what's the essential point of this scene between Franny and her dad, or Franny and her mom? Because I think it could have been a three-page scene, and it was a sixteen-page scene. You know, and I just don't understand what he thinks he's gaining. Um, I know what I'm gaining, and I know why readers like it because uh, reading a book is a way to pass the time, and I get to pass more time, you know, by having a longer book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think. I, I, I didn't try to find a breakdown of which scenes stayed and which scenes, which scenes were in the original, which scenes were in this one, because he changed a bunch either, of stuff yeah. throughout. Uh, and, like, he updated all the pop culture references, which is my favorite. So the original <laughs> version of The Stand is his third novel, I think, in 1978. Right. And uh, it was set in 1980. And then he published the new one uh, in... He published it in about 1990, and it's set in 1990. And so... He changed all the references. So there's all kinds of references <laughs> to, like, Reagan and the 80s right. that weren't there, uh, which is just very, very funny to me, um, and really makes me kind of spin my wheels trying to think about, so what is, which book is The Stand? Are they both The Stand? They're very different, right. you know, but that's that's yeah. a sort of a useless conversation, and I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it, but, you know, with given my video game background with people releasing patches and, you know, Mass Effect 3's <laughs> ending, final cuts and stuff like that, I, I get kind of worked up thinking about whether or not we should allow artists to just go back and edit themselves forever. Allow, as though we should put them in jail. We should. We should put them in jail if they do George Lucas things to the, the original movies. That's what should, well, should be possible by yeah, the jail so term. That's George <laughs> Lucas is the worst, but I, I do think there's a good history of artists making things worse. So, like, Walt Whitman, you know, he releases, you know, he publishes Leaves of Grass, and it's, you know, I don't remember how popular it was initially, but it was popular enough that he became Walt Whitman. But he kept he kept revising it. There's, like, three more editions. And, like, I've, I've looked at, I think, the latest edition at one point in college, and it was appreciably worse. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was definitely not as good as the original verses. And the same thing happened with, um, I mean, Ralph Ellison. So he wrote Invisible Man. 
And then with his second novel, which was never published in his lifetime, he basically couldn't finish it because he wouldn't stop editing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and this is why Stephen King maybe should be praised because I will say, like, he is he is he's putting work out there that is at least interesting enough to be read by not just you know. Uh, like the lowest common denominator, which I think is sometimes what he is associated with, right? Like, oh, everyone reads Stephen King. But truthfully, there are plenty of writers who talk about how influential he's been for them. And so he's doing something real, and he's also doing it with, you know, a pace and an intensity that, like, honestly, I think most writers that I know, they would love to have some of that. They would love to have some of the engine he has that makes him write so many damn books. Well, there's that famous, there's an interview came out a while ago between him and George R. R. Martin, where George R. R. Martin just looks at him and says, how do you write so much? (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, I think a lot of writers are really jealous of him because, uh, you know, he just put out another book this year called The Outsider, which actually people have been really liking. Um, Even some of my horror friends who are not not Stephen King guys and really don't like him. um, One of my friends said he begrudgingly really enjoyed the Stephen King novel. So, you know, he's still doing, and it's a cosmic horror book, which he's not written before, um, I think. So he's he's still doing stuff and changing his style, and I admire I admire the heck out of him for that. Hey, I want to talk about something I really like in this book, because I feel like we've been ragging on Stephen King a bit, and I think it's partly because yeah, he deserves it. <laughs> but at the same time, there are some moments that I really, really like. So chapter 8 is fantastic. And chapter 8 is his description of the plague going from person to person across the country. And it's just about four pages long. And it just picks up with a very, very, very minor character we've seen. And it talks about him, you know, talking to the sheriff and then driving along and then passing the sickness oh, to yeah. 40 people he sees here. And then he follows the chain of the virus through this person and that person. You know, it'll be like, that night they stayed in a Eustace, Oklahoma travel court. Ed and Trish infected the clerk. The kids, Marsha, Stanley, and Hector, infected the kids they played with on the tourist court's playground. Kids bound for West Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Trish infected the two women who were washing clothes at the laundromat two blocks away. Ed, on his way down the motel corridor to get some ice, infected a fellow he passed in the hallway. Everybody got into the act. And that's kind of the whole (laughs) chapter, is it just describes the plague spreading and how it spread very, very clearly. Like, it it doesn't... He doesn't spend a lot of time getting really flowery. He just says, this person saw this person, and when they did, he infected her. And this person saw this person. And I thought it was really, really, really good. (laughs) And I think some of the best moments of the... Some of the best moments of the book are ones like that when he actually kind of backs away from trying to infuse it with a bunch of meaning and he just kind of describes what happens because he's got very clear prose, I think. I was almost never unsure what happened in a scene. Um, I was always like, yeah, I know I know what just went down, which sounds silly, but sometimes you read stuff, both literary and genre fiction, and everyone gets so wrapped around their axles that I'm not sure what the heck actually occurred. I just read a bunch of Elric of Melnabone stories by Michael Moorcock, which, first of all, you know, Stephen King may not be the best writer, but boy howdy, is he better than a lot of genre stuff. Because that's, <laughs> those stories are pretty well respected in the sword and sorcery genre, and I did not like them at all. I thought they were written terribly, and I was disappointed that I had paid money to read them. Um, but, you know, he's trying to describe his sort of dark hero by doing all of these cool things, and I end up not sure, like, so did he stab the monster, or did he, like, right. what happened? And I never felt that way with this book. And that sounds silly, but... I, I like to know what happened in a book when I read it. I like that. Unless it's a deliberate ambiguity, you know? <laughs> and I, So I think, yes, let, let's talk about his prose for a second, because I think you hear a lot about... I, I mean, the phrase that I came up with myself that other people use, I do think he has a certain workmanlike prose at times, which is, like you said, it's based on clarity. But I, it's hard, because, like, for me, his figurative language was really hit or miss. So, like, I, I just remember he talks about... Um, 
this car and getting its tires blown out and he's like he knows that it's a big dramatic moment and then also like it just it's it's an uncanny moment i guess like it needs to feel uncanny because it's it's happening in the middle of a normal day and so he says the you know the car uh washing machined right he's trying to like transform the car into looking something like you know and he's trying to like basically transform it with a daily image into being really weird does that make sense and so it's a smart idea, but the phrase washing machine makes me want to pull my ears out. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like the, I hate it so much. Yeah. And so I think that's some of the problems that he gets piled on for, which are not quite accurate, is that he does know how to use figurative language. I think he doesn't have, like, a, a poetical ear. Do you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't have an ear for, for like, like Don DeLillo, um, who's one of the greatest sentence writers in America. You know, you can just read his sentences and sort of love them for how they sound. But I think I'm, I, what I'm trying to get to eventually is, is that I think I'm with you. Like I think Stephen King has the right instincts for how to write good prose that actually go beyond him having just workmanlike statements, right? So he knows when he got he, he knows when he has to bring in metaphor. He knows when he has to bring in you know something to kind of raise the stakes. I just don't think he always knows how to you know how to do it with the most poetry. Does that make sense? It does. Here's a here's also a complete aside. You mentioned cars. Um, he clearly must have been watching a lot of Kojak when he wrote this book, because he yeah. describes like four or five different things as bald as Telly Savalas, including cars and a couple <laughs> of tiles and a couple of people. And then he names a dog Kojak. So like clearly Telly Savalas was on his mind and that's fine. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't watched Kojak, but it's famous. So that's that's good. But um, sorry, one more. I went one more one more metaphor without doing too much. But um None of the news seemed p- precisely honest. It had twisted slightly like a knife in the hand that gives you a superficial cut instead of peeling the potato as you had expected it to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, that's I, not I th- great. you know what I mean? Like but and I but I think it's I think what I think and I think it gets to my heart of like I, I don't I didn't come into this planning on being like the anti Stephen King guy, so I should clarify, I liked the book. But I I think I'm trying to get at the heart of like why he is dismissible. Do you know what I mean? Like if some people have dismissed him I think it's a defensible position to a point, and I think it's because what he, what he's always doing when he adds a lot of his cool scenes, which someone will talk about later, like with the police or the military or even the chapter you talked about, what sometimes bothers me is he's not adding things that subvert, undercut, or change up what I already knew. He's just giving me more of what I you know of what I already knew, but maybe like in a different area of the world, or like there's a different way in which now I have a bigger picture of the virus, but I don't understand maybe why the characters are malicious or cynical in ways that they don't think they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, keep going with what, what you were going to say. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a bit about King's relationship with pop culture in this book. Um, yeah, and you mentioned a little bit about how he is, I think, very deliberately trying to play with the Eye of Sauron, which. I, on one hand, I appreciated that he was sort of signing the work. You know, he was saying, yeah, I, I know this is what I'm doing. I'm doing it on purpose. If you tell me that I'm just doing the Eye of Sauron, I'm going to say, yeah, that's the point. And right. I appreciated that. Um, it resulted in something kind of funny, though. A lot of these char- a lot of the chapters are pretty restricted into the thoughts and minds of the character. Although sometimes he'll switch halfway through, which is a little disorienting. But usually, you know, a chapter from Franny's perspective is very much from Franny's perspective and doesn't have a ton of sort of external information in it uh everyone has read the lord of the rings in (laughs) this book and everyone knows it well enough to quote specifically from it um which is something i find funny uh i mean granted a lot of people read the lord of the rings so i don't think it's inaccurate but like dana um who is a 
minor character who is sent to spy West. Um, she's also the only non-straight character in the book, which is interesting. Um, uh, she, she's sent to spy West and ends up kind of um, sleeping with one of Randall Flagg, the devil's like lieutenants, because she's going to try to assassinate Randall Flagg, and she actually comes relatively close to it. Um, and Flagg makes his lieutenants, his sort of picked people, wear a medallion, which is a, a black sort of medallion with a, a red flaw in the center. Um, and as Dana looks over at it on the nightstand, she thinks it looks like, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but not just like the Eye of Sauron, but the Eye of Sauron looking out from Barad-dur upon Frodo <laughs> and Sam. Which, of course, I I know that Sauron's tower is called Barad-dur, and there's no reason that Dana wouldn't specifically know that. It's just a lot of characters know all of the same pop culture that Stephen King does. Yes. Like Larry Underwood talks about how... You know, if if everyone always knew what was going on down the street, it would be like a Lovecraft story, and it's just kind of funny. I never really feel like any of these people have a different sort of shared experience, if you know what I mean, right? Like they, no, they all I, know I a lot of the same really pop smart. culture, other than maybe Mother Abigail. They all know the same pop culture, and it's because these are the pop culture elements Stephen King cares about, and it's also the ones he wants to play with in the book. So he has to have somebody say, "Oh, like the Eye of Sauron," to sort of signify that he knows what he's doing and he's not just stealing from Tolkien. Um, but it, it, like I said, it is funny that, you know, n- not only is it like the Eye of Sauron, but it's like the Eye of Sauron atop Barad-dur. I don't know. It just really tickled me in ways I'm well, not sure I can articulate. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, and I, I, I like, I'm with you. I, I like that he is, he's trying to, um, a writer I don't like actually, Dave Eggers, he built his career on this memoir that is like, it's basically calling card of intelligence is that it's going to self-consciously try and undercut every expectation you have of it. Right. So yeah, I've tried to read that like four times and yeah. I may give up. Yeah. It's, I mean, it has some really beautiful passages, but it is, it was sort of a frustrating um, endeavor, but, but, but I, so I will say actually on, on this specific point, and I'll, I'll, I won't go into it forever, but it, it actually drove me I was I did not like that he did the Eye of Sauron thing because I thought that actually I thought that he he basically gave himself a pass on stealing the most interesting kind of evil evil nature in Lord of the Rings. It's actually the most interesting evil part of Randall Flagg, right? That they always yeah. feel his presence, they feel him watching, they feel him like that's the most interesting part of Randall Flagg's evilness. It's also for the most part, besides like some wheels in a cornfield, it's also the only evil that most of the characters directly in- encounter as regards his presence, right? And so if they're all supposed to be so scared of him and he's supposed to like be this big bad villain you know and the dreams are really bad or whatever but like it's it seems like a really pivotal part of him being the bad guy is actually just straight up lifted in fact you joke about lifting it stephen king from the most well-known fantasy epic of all time at some point like i'll be honest like i I, it was funny why he first said it but I, i actually thought it was just lazy that's just lazy that's not you figuring out a different way to do an evil bad guy you know what i mean um which he does. I'm not giving enough credit in some ways, but I just I found Randall Flag to not be as super interesting for most of the book. Toward the end, he kind of became a little more interesting. But and so for me, the the fact that he was relying on Sauron so much, it felt like at times, as a comparison, it was hard because like I didn't care about Randall Flag. I thought he was. No, I thought yeah, he was kind of like a bad. For most of the book, he was sort of an uninteresting boogeyman. So all, all to say though is Randall Flag though to defend Stephen King, he's once again this like 
this this uh, a perfect example of almost like a Rorschach test, right? When you look at Stephen King, right? Because he's either some sort of dopey, you know, Forrest Gump type demon romping through, you know, I, was, I, I wrote that down too. <laughs> that he was like the Forrest Gump of like domestic terrorists. That's exactly yeah. that's exactly right. Like, <laughs> every every bad thing that's happened in America, well, he just happened to be there and his photo was taken, you know, or. I mean, or if, if you're looking at it on the symbolic level, I mean, Stephen King has said, hey, America and the world have been cut down literally to their essential spiritual components, right? That what's left is sort of a spiritual essence. That's why everyone's more psychic. It's why there's Mother Abigail versus Randall Flag. that like the material world has been cut down to a very spiritual, you know, center. And that what he represents is sort of the dark belly of any American extremism, right? Because he's both right wing and left wing, and he's, it doesn't matter what kind of terrorism, he is sort of the dark underbelly of America who is now given free reign. And so, like, that, that is smart. I just, I don't, like, I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know how to say it's also not smart. You know what I mean? Like, cause it also feels kind of lazy to be like, here is every bad thing in America in one person. Does it make sense? Yeah, I, I didn't really find Flag particularly compelling, and that's partly because I'm, I guess I, I did my slog through all of the sort of D&D-based novels back in the day, and so I'm kind of over, like, here's your good guys and here are your bad guys, and they are mystically dedic- <laughs> you know, they, they are mystically sorted into these... I don't just mean... Like, it's fine when books have good guys and bad guys, that's great, but I mean, you know, there's some mystical, magical force which has drawn all of the chosen good people here and drawn all of the chosen bad people there, and, you know, so be it. And I don't... I get kind of bored by that, which is maybe more about me than about the book. That's maybe not really fair, but... Yeah, flag didn't do it for me, even at the end. And I want to. Okay, can we can we talk to can we can we do the, the obvious criticisms now? Yes. Stephen King uh, has some problems in this book with women and with people who aren't white. Uh, <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about the race thing, which is a smaller problem, but is everywhere. Are there any black people in this book other than Mother Abigail and people who go crazy? Because I don't think there are. No, there aren't. Are there any Hispanic people in this book at all? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and maybe the sort of feral kid is Asian, because King repeatedly refers to his Chinese eyes over and over and over oh, and over God, and over I again. Oh, that was so bad. So we have a, a book about sort of all of America being sort of, you know, cut down to its basics and thrown into a room. And it feels like everybody except Mother Abigail is white. And that's not maybe great. And it feels like most of the black people you meet in the book are... Uh, uncharitably portrayed there's the group of black soldiers in new england who strip down to their loincloths not their underwear mind you these people found loincloths somewhere uh and go crazy and kill all the white people there's the young black heroin addict described in the second epidemic who goes off and finds himself a bunch of two you know two pure harrigan and ods immediately there's a lot of other people who are very he's very very happy to just he, he really leans on how black they are a lot of the time like Mother Abigail is never just an old woman. She's always an old black woman, sort of regardless of who's talking right, about her. Right, as opposed to as opposed to young white Franny. It's never a young white Franny, but it is always yeah. old black. Old Mother black Abigail. Mother Abigail. Um, and I guess the, the, uh, Mother Abigail's family, I guess, is described in the past, and they're black, and they're they're more or less people. Um, but almost everyone else is tropey and gross. I guess is what I'm trying to say, uh, and or just not there at all. Um, which is, you know, I, I guess the demographics were a bit different in 1990 than they are today, but, like, 
if a pop if a virus killed ninety nine percent of the population of America, there'd still be a lot of like Hispanic people left and, and black people yeah. left. You know what I mean? And some of them should have come to Boulder or Las Vegas. Oh, there's the Ethiopian pirate, the rat man. That oh, yeah, God, that's right. God. So no, basically, and I, and I, well, and even sorry, I feel like and I feel like Mother Abigail is like a an explicit self conscious part on the book or on Stephen King's. You know, uh, he, he's trying to basically. I think there is some self-conscious correction as far as like, not necessarily like that he's worried about the PC stuff per se, but I think he is trying to show like something. Because I think when he is show, sometimes when he shows, you know, um, like actually the instances you picked out are the most indicting because sometimes we see white people being racist toward black people, right? Which I think is yeah. sort of is sort of ballsy because he's not he's not going to dress up, you know, sort of rural white America's tendency. You know, to be a little racist now and then, but um, but I do think there is something without sounding like a bard student. <laughs> there is something problematic about definitely race, even with Mother Abigail, who I, I actually I did find her really compelling. I thought he really tried to fill her out with her background and what it meant to come up in like the twenties as a black woman and whatever else, right? He did, I think, a, a pretty admirable job overall, um, giving her a full history. And a full presence, right? She has a unique presence that isn't just magical black woman, except it also is sort of just magical black woman, right? Which is so often yeah. in the history of like American novels, if black people participate, you know, it's like the spiritual black mama, right? And there's a really disgusting trope in which, like, you know, he is trying to subvert maybe whether he knows it or not but also feels like he's just playing into it like there's an old woman who sings blues on her porch who happens to be the most spiritual person and she's black of course of course she is Do you know what i mean like yeah. it's just it's such a cliche in its own way that even mother abigail who i think is a correction to some of the stuff going on like what you're talking about she still plays into these stupid tropes that are just over and actually the worst worst of mother abigail in some ways is Franny, which maybe you want to pick up that thread because I think Franny goes from interesting to 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 shrewish housewife in a record time. Yeah, real fast. Uh, it's real wild how quickly she goes from a very interesting, the most interesting character in the book to just somebody hanging on Stu's arm and saying, "Please don't do the thing you obviously have to do for the good of the community. Please don't do it," um, which is the most annoying trope. I hate it. I hate that trope, which is the 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 beloved housewife who looks at the hero and says. You know, but Steve, there's this thing you obviously have to do or it will destroy the world if you don't. But don't do it. Stay with me instead. Right. And it's just so dumb. People don't. Well, maybe and, people do that. But and, I, and Well, and also, like, and again, I mean, I think Stephen King could have dealt with it. And he, and he tries to because, like, I mean, I, I get the idea of, like, okay, so only women can have babies. I get that. And so I get that, like, there's a – in a survival in, – in a survival situation – like no one's no one's saying that yeah a pregnant woman isn't more vulnerable than Stu Redman right but like the fact that no women go on the mission at the end or like the fact that basically uh, Franny gets to Boulder and then she immediately becomes absent like she's just yeah. this and, and, it, and sometimes there's a few gestures to her being the moral conscience but basically her role like and she literally says this she and Lucy and everyone else if I hear if I if I read one more time. Of a wife being like, well, my man, how's your man? My man's good. It was like, oh my yeah. god, like that's that's become their only thing to talk about. Which, I, and again, I don't want to sound like a bad, you know, Jezebel article because I th I think Stephen King is trying to do something that is more complicated than what we're saying. But he, the problem is he also does these things. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think I think that these criticisms are right. Like, I, I mean, 
one could definitely overplay, I guess, or, or say, and therefore the whole book should be destroyed. But, like, he doesn't... Most of his women are defined by needing or wanting a man. All, yeah, uh, all of them, I think, yeah. I, almost, all of them except for Dana and um, some of, like, very minor characters and, like, Mother Abigail. Although even she talks about how much she had enjoyed it, you know. That's true. The only character who isn't really... only female character who doesn't at least play with this idea is Dana, who is bi. Or a lesbian. It's never quite clear which. She's also the only woman who's ever sent on a dangerous mission by herself. And it's just like, Steve, I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, but it's hard right. not to... <laughs> well, that's so in like in a weird way, like, in a weird way, she has to be masculine to have agency, almost, right? Yeah, like she, exactly. She has to mimic a man to then be... <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of it quite that succinctly, but it, it, I did find it weird that the only person who didn't want to shack up with a man was the only woman allowed to do any work. It just seemed, it just, and, and, and also, like, this is the problem with PC stuff, is like, well, so I think we should talk about the book and how it definitely is a product of the 70s. And, I, and I, I, I'm i someone who does think historical context matters. So, like, if, if, you, if you read Mark Twain and you think he should have your sensibilities, you're just not reading history. If you think Mark Twain should maybe not be read because his sensibilities don't match ours, that's a different argument. But I, I don't think that, you know, like, the same standards can be applied throughout history. I think that's just historically foolish, right? As far as, like, I'm going to hang Mark Twain because he uses the N-word. I don't think he should have, but I don't think it's this. I don't think it's the same mistake um, that I would make by using the N word now. Does that make sense? I know I'm on dicey territory, but I, I just think. No, I, th- uh, I mean that, that's also such a culturally specific thing, right? Like, there's nothing magical about a word, right? We don't use that word because of its history and its culture and the fact that it was used for such a very, very long time and still is used as a way to denigrate a massive chunk of the population. And so right. we can just not say that word for now. Right, which, um, and, and, and again, and, and, when, and here's the problem, is like, and Mark Twain can be condemned for being a part of that, but I don't think you can say that Mark Twain also didn't do a lot of good work on behalf of a lot of liberal projects, right? So there's just this weird thing in which one flaw invalidates everything. And I think Stephen King, like, we're, we're bordering on that territory, except that in 1970s, it wasn't like women's rights were, you know what I mean? It wasn't like he was blind to the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't write this yeah. book in the 30s. And so I think that's why it feels it feels even more frustrating that because then he revised it to 1990. And so it just seems so, it just seems so weird that he would, he wouldn't, if nothing else, I think what really frustrated me is that like, okay, I was annoyed as someone who didn't want Franny to be like a shrewish housewife because I think that's a dumb trope for political reasons. But actually like, here's the real truth of the thing too is it's, it's bad character development. She went yeah. from an interesting character who's active to a non-interesting character who's passive, and she's one of our four main point-of-view characters. And That's I don't exactly underst- right. And I don't understand why, like, why from even just a plot standpoint, he wouldn't have found something else for her to do besides give birth to a baby. <laughs> and be the secretary of the Oh my god, the, uh, and be the secretary. Council. Oh my god. Yeah, because when she's in Maine, she does all kinds of cool things. The scene when she's burying her father is one of the best scenes in the book. Um, it's, I thought, yeah, really, agreed. really evocative, really clear, not overwritten. Um, she, she behaves in a way which I think is very interesting. You know, a combination of, of both being sort of in shock while also sort of deliberately choosing to move forward as best she can. Um, you know, and some of her early scenes with Harold are definitely some of the most interesting in the book, where she's trying to figure out how to treat this this character I think we're going to have to talk about Harold more later, but he's kind of a a big 
social outcast loser nerd type. He's he's physically very large. He's the younger brother of one of Fran's friends who was always very successful. And he has an arc throughout the first two-thirds of the book where it's never clear whether he's going to kind of man up and become a part of the community or if he's going to kind of descend into this sort of switch to the winning team, you know, switch to Randall Flagg's team and and do some bad things. Um, and her early dis- uh, chapters where she's trying to figure out how to deal with him because he's kind of creepy, but maybe it's just because he's awkward and right. he's also grieving and she understands that he's grieving and she's grieving and what do they do are actually pretty good. And then, yeah, they get to Boulder and she's a secretary and then she has a baby. <laughs> well, and so let's and let's finish up this section of our being, you know, very classic millennials um, by saying that Nadine's arc yep. is terrible. Horrifying. God, horrifying. wanted to throw the book. That's what and I was going to say. And I, and you know what's, you know what's the the biggest bummer is that I think that her um, the back the flashback with um, the Ouija board. Um, yeah, the planchette. Is, yeah, is actually it's really good. I thought. It's I thought really that was good. like that was like a reminder that that Stephen King is like, oh right, the master of horror storytelling, and so it was frustrating that he he used her to do some interesting scenes, but honestly, like if I'm being really cruel, he used her as dismissively almost as every male in the book uses her. Do you know what I mean? Like she's yeah. just this beautiful virgin woman who is sacrificed to the lust of a demon. And by the way, for no point at all. No reason at all. Okay, Nothing so we better happens. talk about this a bit. Nadine Cross, is that her last name? I think so. Or is that somebody else? Nadine is a character that Larry, who was the former rock star, uh, meets on the road one point. She's got this little boy who has gone kind of feral and won't talk and likes to stab things. Um, and she's kind of odd. She's uh, like in her mid-30s, but she's got like shocks of white hair. And it's not really clear... Nobody's quite sure what to do with her. And it comes out throughout the course of the book that she, ever since she was younger, and particularly in college when um, there was a an incident with automatic writing, basically a, a Ouija board. It, it's not quite like that, but yeah, it's the same it's not, principle. Yeah, it's a plan giant, um, yeah. Which gets taken over by, clearly, Randall Flagg to tell her, basically, that she should save herself for marriage to him at some point in the future. And so she's kind of torn because she wants to... She is kind of a good person, and she wants to be a good person, but also she's been sort of destined since she was a child to be the wife of the devil, um, which <laughs> is whatever. But um, there could be ways to do that that are interesting, and towards the beginning, some of her sort of you know tension on that, because she kind of falls in love with Larry, are kind of interesting. Um, but then it comes out that what the devil really wants from her is her virginity, because we're very boring, and... So her moment when she wants to switch <laughs> sides and join with Mother Abigail, she's part of the community, but when she's going to kind of commit herself to the side of, of good, she throws herself at Larry and asks him to have sex with her. And when he doesn't, because he's already got a girlfriend and he's trying to do something unselfish, she just decides to go be evil and sort of seduces Harold where they do all kinds of kinky sex stuff that isn't technically violating her virginity. And this is gross, but it's the book. Like, I'm sorry, this is, it's this the, is the book. This is the book in um, plot summary, exactly. And so then she wanders off west after she and Harold commit a terrorist act against the town, the town's council, where Randall Flagg finds her, um, sexually assaults her, and then she becomes pregnant and antagonizes him into throwing her off a bridge, and or off of a building. And that's Nadine's arc. It's entirely one of her value as a sexual object, and it's gross, and it's the worst thing in the book. Uh, some of the other stuff in the book you can 
either excuse or at least say it's still worth reading. I mean, it is worth reading, I think. But yeah, I think I agree. But that's well, the, that's the part that is the most like, no, this is this is bad. This is problematic. This isn't just me here in 2018 with all of my. You know, no, I can say words like karaoke. This is actually just bad. <laughs> no, it, I, I I totally agree, and I I think it was. It was most frustrating because I, I think because he wants her to be a, you know a fascinating object and it, it, it is always an object, but because he wants her to be a fascinating object, he does a few things in the beginning. Like she has an interesting situation, right? Like she has this kind of feral child that she found, right? That she's trying to guide, um, and she also she's the only person, the only quote unquote good person who's tempted by the, the devil, right, by Randall Flagg. Because Harold sort of, we can go into him a little, in a little bit, but she's the only really, you know, person who, we, who I think he wants us to sympathize with who is also tempted by evil. But in, in, any, any inkling of that, which is at the very beginning, is like immediately, not even like, I don't know, like flooded over, right? Like it's like this, these bubbles in this vast ocean of sexual objectification that is just, it was so, again, and what frustrates me on, the, so the first frustration is, I, I would almost call it moral, right? A moral frustration. And the second frustration continues to be like, um, uh, a writer, teacher I had once said this, which is like, often what makes you a good person is in some ways what will make you a good writer. It will come out in the end. And I think it goes back to what I said about Franny. Nadine wasn't interesting. As soon as she became nothing but sex, which is like the second time she shows up, um, yeah, she she's I don't she was I almost like I almost wanted to skip all of her stuff right because it didn't matter I didn't care I, like it mattered as far as Larry's temptation like he got to be a good person that was good for him but she still got to be nothing but an object that he resisted do you know what I mean yeah um, yeah yeah it was bad and also but I want to tie it in with with Harold so what did you think about Harold maybe remind us who he is too <laughs> okay so Harold again he's the 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 geek that. Franny runs into and then his whole deal is that he's sort of not sure what kind of man he's going to be in the post-apocalypse because he's pretty young and there's a while when you think maybe he's going to kind of come out of his shell and be a good person but then when he and Franny run into Stu Redman who's our Texan character and probably the closest thing to a hero in the book um, Harold becomes very possessive of Franny and worried that Stu is going to steal her and it does turn out that Stu and Franny do sort of fall in love Um, and so Harold spends the rest of the book sort of stewing about this ah stewing yeah get it because the guy, oh other guys know what to do yeah anyway uh and you know sort of being torn between whether he's going to be a good person or a bad person and he kind of goes through this uh revitalization in boulder where he kind of joins one of the work crews and the men all kind of like him and treat him like an equal and he's never felt like that before they call him hawk which he really likes um but then nadine shows up and tempts him with sex and so he goes and joins the the bad guys and constructs a bomb but you know what drives me crazy about about his arc is that so when it, it's also an indictment of how i think stephen king deals with uh, nadine and the other women, women characters is that so i think that basically harold is as 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 uninteresting in some ways as nadine because it's revealed at some point that he has these like secret fetishes right and he's had them yeah. He's had them his whole, like, all of high school. And, and so it's this weird way. And before he goes evil, he's revealed to have this. And so he's kind of this, like, for me, very flat, uninteresting 
person as soon as he becomes nothing but his own fetishes, right? So before that, he's trying to prove himself, and he's trying to prove himself to Franny, and he's trying to like take the opportunity, the post-apocalypse, to be someone new, and he's failing at it. But then, as soon as he decides to be bad, his his whole kind of psyche, it feels like, is supposed to be summed up in his sort of, you know, sadomasochistic fantasies, right? And yeah. um, and so in some ways he becomes as flat a character as Nadine because it's not there's 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 nothing to the male gaze except for his male gaze. You know what I mean like there's not anything complicating what he's doing, and yet Stephen King can still write about him, you know, with uh, I think a purposefulness and an activity, and uh, at times like you mentioned like you know he goes through this phase he gets, he gets called Hawk by the Boulderites. He has these, these these at least attempts at nuance that like is never granted to Nadine. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I find them to be I find them to be a pair because I think Stephen King uses both of their kind of sexualization or their relationship to sex to really make them boring characters. To be honest, I think so. I think so. I, I thought Howard was kind of I thought more about Howard than I might have because um, he's kind of a proto incel, right? Like he's that same sort of. Uh, lousy, nerdy dude that I've been thinking about a lot recently because they're on the news and totally. occasionally they take yeah. guns and shoot people. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot in which I think Harold is very, like the writing of Harold is very perceptive about how that, that guy thinks. He's kind of ostracized yes. at school and, you know, nobody will talk to him. And so he retreats into sort of fantastical fiction like uh, um, and of a certain kind. Like, King mentions that he read a lot of Burroughs and Howard and those guys, you know, your John Carters and Tarzans and Conans, who are right. not, you know, there's value to some of that stuff, but a lot of it's also pretty gross. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of the Conan stories, but Conan's relationship with women is mostly not great. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so he, he sort of loses himself in these fantasies, and uh, then when the apocalypse comes, he sort of tries to be more of that figure, more of the sort of rampaging barbarian who can do whatever he wants and of course he's not capable of doing that he's not a very strong or interesting guy like when the one gunfight happens I don't think he gets a good shot off at anybody um, you know he, car- he carries a two gun rig uh, like Johnny Ringo they say uh, because he right. there's guns everywhere and they start carrying them and they do get into one gunfight which I thought was really well described actually I did too actually so that, that was, was a good. really good scene um, and Harold just kind of stands there like I think at the end he finally pulls a gun and shoots at nothing Um but he has these fantasies of being this powerful masculine figure. And he even has like a secret blog, right? Like he has his secret ledger where he writes out <laughs> yeah. all of his thoughts, which are these not usually written out, but there's these sort of weird aphorisms and sort of Nietzschean gibberish, which is, again, he's posting this nowhere. He's writing this on a notebook he keeps, but it feels a lot like these guys with their massive three hour long YouTube screeds about Anita Sarkeesian, you know? Uh, right, yeah, well, because they read Nietzsche once, they think they yeah. can bloviate to, yeah, a certain degree. And so I kind of enjoyed Harold as a sort of a, a depiction of this uber-nerd type who's still very, in, in many ways, I think, more influential and important in sort of modern culture now, and is still just as bad. But I'm not sure if that's exactly a good character as he's written, or if it's just like, oh yeah, this guy, I know him, he makes YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I do think so I think what you're saying, you're saying it a little better than I said it, which is that I think like so Stephen King's weakness when it comes to sex and sexual desire and sexual whatever, I think Harold 
you know, a lot of what's interesting about him becomes undercut by the ability to satiate some of these things with Nadine, right? That like yeah. he becomes he becomes just the male gaze and she becomes just the object of the male gaze. And so they kind of become equally flat and uninteresting and also maybe equally morally suspect. And yet Harold, because of how he's dealt with earlier, but even how he's dealt with throughout this kind of, you know, flattening out of both he and Nadine Stephen King can still go to a place that, you know, is more, again, just challenging to the reader, maybe, or challenging to maybe our expectations for someone like Harold, whereas Nadine never gets that benefit. Like, not yeah. once does she get to be someone, like, like why does she have a weird hang-up with virginity? Like, so she saw something, an automatic writing one time, right? Okay, that's weird, but, like, w- like where's her background as, like, a, you know a fundamentalist Baptist or Mormon or, you know, like, like where's her background is like, maybe she like she came up in a really repressive household. Like there's not, you know, there's not this, this psychology behind what's going on with her. Right. There's just the fact that she's beautiful and promised to the devil. <laughs> um, yeah. She's always defined by one of these men. Whereas Harold has some self definition, you know, Harold at the end, after he he's constructed the bomb and gets in a car accident or a motorcycle accident and is dying on the bridge, gets a whole chapter about Harold sort of, rethinking his life and then sort of making a choice to kill himself. Um, yeah. Whereas Nadine never becomes a point of view character again after she's raped, right? Like, well, and she... that's, and that, and I, and I get, I think again, you can, I think the Stephen King uh, fans would argue the hardcore ones, sorry to generalize Stephen King fans, but um, I think they can make the argument that like, okay, her agency is taken from her, right? Like that would be the argument. Like if you wanted to try and defend why she doesn't show up again, but actually it really pissed me off based on how Stephen King had written. If he was doing some other different project that was maybe more sophisticated than some of the stuff he's doing in this book, I, I would have gotten why I didn't get to see Nadine choose to piss off Randall Flagg and yeah. then get thrown off the balcony. But the fact that it just happens, even though it's supposed to be her 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 own little personal stand against him, you know, yeah. it actually felt like a continuation of her passivity because it came out of nowhere. It was seen from Randall Flagg's perspective, I think. Yep. And it, it just, it just, all it was was a way to, to, to end her presence in the book, you know? If, I don't know. So we've gone on for Nadine probably too long. Um, well, but it's a really <laughs> gross part of the book. I, I think yeah. it would be, I mean, the idea behind this podcast is to really dig into these texts. And I think if you really dug into this text and didn't <sighs> yell about how bad Nadine is or how bad the writing of Nadine is, I think you'd be doing a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. So let's, I, we have a lot more to talk about. Who knows what we'll have time. <laughs> this book is so damn big, but I want to transition. So, so I, I had, I was, uh, I, I was going to make you do more of like a listicle uh, answer to a question I had, but you don't have to do it pure listicle. But I wanted to talk about who you thought were the best and worst characters because I, I, I didn't put Nadine in my worst characters arc because I actually thought like she wasn't enough of a character to be like bad. Like she was just a bad thing in the book that shouldn't have been in there. You know what I mean? Like, like her arc was so flat. She wasn't even a bad character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but I, but I wanted to just basically on, on any levels, like best and worst, or maybe let's start with best characters and best characters, maybe like in the sense of like who you loved and was fun. And also maybe who you thought was really well written. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll pick one. And then how do, how do you want to do this? Do you want me to just list off everyone I like and talk for half an just hour? List, or yeah. Want... <laughs> yeah. We'll just, just list some people and like, maybe like ones you liked and the ones you thought were really well, like the top couple who were both really enjoyable, but who maybe it's the same thing, but yeah, whatever. So my, my favorite probably, and this is predictable is probably Glenn, the sociologist. Um, yeah. He's, he's sometimes the mouthpiece for King to be like, and here's what I have to say about society. But he, 
he was one of the only characters who I thought had a, a pretty defined voice, which was separate from just Stephen King's general sort of, um, you know, middle class or not like, like not middle class, but like Midwest Americana voice, which is actually fine. Like, but Glenn, I, I no, can always tell a, what yeah, it was Glenn's dialogue, and I liked Glenn sort of. I enjoyed a lot of what he had to say and his sort of concerns about rebuilding society, which, you know, I'm a lawyer. So one of the things I was thinking about is, okay, so they said they adopted the Constitution. This is important. In Boulder, they have a whole We're Americans Again thing, which I thought was pretty good, where they sing the Star Spangled Banner, which is the third or fourth time the song gets sung in the book. It's a a recurring plot point. Um, Right. They they, they sing the Star Spangled Banner and they, they vote to adopt the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And... That's exactly the sort of thing I imagine people like that would do. But I'm just like, what? So does that mean you're going to send representatives to Washington? What does that mean? <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff in the Constitution that doesn't make any sense if your nation is a thousand people in Boulder. Like, what are you? What are you doing? Um, <laughs> and and Glenn, I thought raised some of those questions. And I also thought the way he his defiance at the end and the way he died was one of the best parts of the book. So that's so I was going to say so Glenn's definitely on my list and I I put like a on my list I put like a maybe Glenn because what what so cuz I had like a two valence reaction to him and that's why I kept asking you <laughs> the question in two ways cuz in one way <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think as far as who I enjoyed, I 100% enjoyed Glenn almost the most of the book. I liked when he, I liked his erudition. I liked that he was quirky. Um, I mean, I liked even and a lot of this stuff is like classic. Like, and this is you know, I got on a. I think you and I <laughs> you can safely say like we have a you know a, a, a geek boy fandom in our past, if not our present. So I think and he appeals to a lot of that, right? He's like yeah. this really smart, quirky guy. Um, who's kind of the sage of the group. But I, I, what I loved so much about him was not only that he was the voice of reason sometimes, but that he was kind of unexpected in his serious belief in Mother Abigail. Yeah. That he was someone who was actually, like, he was one of the few characters who seemed to really confront what it meant for all of this spiritual stuff to be happening, right? That he said, okay... I'm not crazy, and the world doesn't get to just be different than it was a year ago because of the flu, and yet this prophecy seems to be accurate. So yeah. what? how do I react to that? How do I, as someone who's educated and, you know, whatever, react to that? And he reacts by, I think, you know, choosing to believe despite not wanting to believe, if that makes sense. And... Um, and I agree. I thought of the whole of the whole um, kind of ending chapter, the denouement of the four characters going to Las Vegas, um, and three of them end up being basically sacrifices in some nebulous way. Um, I totally thought Glenn's death was the best. I thought it was it was the most shocking as far as it was just so casual and brutal. But I also thought it showed the most courage. He was just so intent on being the old guy who was going to make it to Vegas despite all of the physical restrictions and, you know, give his life without question for this old woman who can prophesy. That's, I think that's a great arc. What I liked, like, so at the end, he's in a jail cell and Randall Flagg and Randall's Lieutenant Lloyd come to taunt him, basically, and probably yeah. not intending to kill him. The uh, The intention is for the remaining people to be sort of quartered in the main square and kind of a deliberate public execution. But Glenn gets under Randall Flagg's skin um, yeah. by sort of calling him a bunch of names basically and saying that he's not really much of anybody you know he sees him in the flesh and he says i've been worried about you this whole time we've had all these dreams and you're just some jackass like you're not (laughs) and so your jeans are too tight (laughs) yeah and so randall gets really mad and orders lloyd to shoot him but uh my favorite bit is so randall flag sees a lot of stuff like his sort of eye of sauron thing and it's never clear how much of that is just that he can spy a lot or if he's telepathic too 
Glenn has really terrible arthritis because uh, he's a relatively old man who just walked across half the country. And Flag tries to tease him about it, and Glenn very purposefully opens and closes his hands, which is agony. But he puts on a face as though it's no big deal. And just that little quiet defiance moment was my favorite part of that yeah. scene. Yeah. No, that's. I think you're right. You pinpointed, yeah, that he is just. I, on every level, he's going to kind of, you know, resist and make fun of Randall Flagg, who deserves all of the making fun of in the world. Who is one of your favorite characters? So it's not just me talking for <laughs> <laughs> Um I really, so I, I, I really liked uh, this minor character, Whitney, who they also call Whitey. Yeah. Um, and he's a bad guy. So he's like, so again, there's the Boulderites who are good and Boulder, and then there's the Las Vegas crew who are bad, which of course, Sin City. I mean, this is where... Again, you can give Stephen King credit for being kind of tongue-in-cheek and symbolic, or you can say, really? <laughs> Sin City <laughs> is the home of the devil? Like, okay, anyway. Um, but uh, he's, like a, he's like a super minor character, but I thought he was really interesting. And so, and I, so I didn't enjoy him like I enjoyed Glenn, because he's barely in the book. But why I liked him so much was because he was one of the instances of... Um, you know, Stephen King really trying to complicate this whole good guy, bad guy thing where, like, you know, Whitney was some kind of criminal hard case of his own type, right? But, like, he's essentially a man who acts with integrity out of fear, right? And so, like, he's, he's, and basically, I mean, this is, this is, again, going to get us into controversial territory, but he's basically, in some ways, like, the good Nazi, right? So I, I think, I, I've talked with this with other people, like, I'll never write a book about Nazis or about that kind of stuff because I think, fiction has to tend toward complication you know what i mean so like if i wrote a nazi who's like just a bad nazi it's not a good book do you know what i mean yeah um even though it's an accurate statement of history or maybe how i view things morally it wouldn't make for good fiction for whatever reason i don't know why that is it's like a crash thing not a moral thing and i think whitney represents stephen king doing his best because he's like a good cook and he does some terrible things but he like he gives like sympathy to someone before they go to see randall flag he like genuinely feels bad for them and sort of you know kind of imparts some courage he tries to help out lloyd who is you know um randall flag's left hand man right hand man and he wants to actually leave Randall Flag and take a crew and like escape. You know what I mean? Like, and I just thought it was an interesting way to complicate um, a lot of the really boring good bad stuff by having someone who's essentially good going along with the bad side. Yeah, basically. he's one of the only people who's nice to the trash can man. And he, yeah, uh, I mean, he's the one who comes back at the end, right? When they're doing the public execution scene and sort of tries to call yes. out that this is bad, and then gets his face melted. Yeah. Yes. Um, so no, I, I'm with you. I, I enjoyed him. I don't. I, he wouldn't have been on my list, but I, I, I. He's a. He's one of the better minor characters in the book. Which one of the things that's fun about a book this big, and one of the reasons they're worth reading, is because you can get all these little tiny characters that you would never be able to throw into a 300 page book that can be really important. Like it's one of the fun things about, you know, Dune or the Lord of the Rings or whatever, is you can have these minor characters that you really care a lot about that you see for maybe 20 pages. And, uh, you know, that is one of my favorite things about these huge books. I don't usually read them, but that is definitely a value that they bring is a much more fleshed out universe. Um, yeah, so. I well, like my favorite moment in Lord of the Rings, uh, maybe it's The Hobbit. Man, I'm going to expose my I haven't read the books in a while. I think it's The Hobbit, but it's the fox who has a interior thought. That's in The Lord <laughs> of the Rings, but it's it's really it's, early yeah, on. In Lord so, Rings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really early on. Yeah, because he, he sees the hobbits traveling. Right. And he has a thought about how weird it is that they're out or something. It's yeah, I can't remember it. Well, but no, I, I a, love that because it's like it's like sorry it's just Tolkien being like hey uh, sometimes foxes also have discernible communicable thoughts which is so great. 
No, that's a great. It's one of my favorite moments actually in the first half of the in the first third of the book. Um, is yeah, this fox is just like wow, four hobbits out in the middle of the night. That's weird. That's I'm gonna, weird. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go somewhere else now. Can't be any good. <laughs> um, I also, as far as other characters who I thought maybe appealed to like a certain, I guess so. I guess I, I think that Stephen King deals in in like types. Like he like has has character types, and everyone does. I think a weakness a weakness he has is he's not great at like subverting the type as the book goes on in a way that I find convincing at least. And so it's partly hard. I feel bad saying that because I also like so I think like when I talk about liking Glenn, I think Glenn is a type of character I've seen in other books a lot. Yeah. But I just I loved him still, you know, and I think he was unique enough compared to some other characters. But I felt the same about Judge Ferris actually. I yeah. liked Judge Ferris a lot. I thought that he was sort of your typical like I'm an old man from the West who's wise but hardy. But at the same time, you know, I I I, th- I thought that he um, his sacrifice was maybe harder because of 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 how nothing came of what he did. Right? He goes to. He, he's a spy, Judge Ferris. He's a spy for the Bull of the Rights into Las Vegas, and like he accomplishes nothing. He just dies, you know. Yeah. And I thought that was I thought that was a smart complication of the whole good guy versus bad guy. Where like, hey, we sent spies, and you know what? They just died, and it was a bummer. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Judge Ferris too. He's one of my favorite characters. Um, I loved in the so there's these town hall meetings early on, and people will stand up and, and say all kinds of wild things and Judge Ferris will just calmly correct them. Like, they'll stand oh, yeah. up and, and add up a bunch of numbers and say, and that's just like in Revelation, you know, 26 or whatever. And Judge Ferris will be like, that's not, there's no Revelation 26. And that's right. not how you add those numbers anyway. And, <laughs> and uh, I think we haven't talked about the best character in the book yet, and I think we have to. Because the best character in the book, without a doubt, is Kojak slash Big Steve, the dog. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Preach, Bill. Such a good dog. <laughs> <laughs> good boy big steve <laughs> no i thought so actually that was one of the things where um again i feel like this is a it's gonna sound like a, a backhanded compliment but actually i don't mean it to be because like I, I dogs in books are usually bad they're usually not good and especially if you want to do a perspective from the dog yeah. even worse what are you doing why are you wasting my time but for some reason um, Stephen King captured the purity of a dog's mind. <laughs> you know, like somehow, I mean, not some reason, but somehow he like captures. So Big Steve the dog travels across the country to find Glenn, um, and he does so at one point. He fights off all these wolves who are maybe or maybe not possessed by Randall Flag, and we see the scene from Big Steve's perspective. And I just remember reading it, and being like that's probably how a dog would have thought about himself. <laughs> yep. You know, like it was like, that's exactly what a dog would have done, which is like a straightforward, got to get to my master. I'm awesome. I killed these wolves. I don't know. I just thought it was like a, it was, I think he was at most having fun, but I did think it was one time in the book where, where Stephen King was like, this is supposed to be a fun epic. Here's a dog's perspective. And I totally bought it. I was very in. Well, like towards, so at the end, Stu, again, he's fallen down, he's broken his leg. Um, and the dog shows up. I forget. Yeah. The dog had been with him the whole time, but it sticks around with Stu and Stu right. can't move because his leg is so broken. And the dog brings him stuff. The dog brings him a squirrel. Or the dog brings him wood. And the dog bl- brings him a blanket. And the whole time Stu doesn't think the dog's going to do this. And the dog always does it. And it's sort of the most tropey thing you can do, right? Is yeah. Incredibly, yeah. incredibly good and incredibly loyal dog who takes care of his master. And I don't... It was still great. He's a good dog. I don't know. Sometimes tropes are good. <laughs> well, I, like, <laughs> I know. It was like he's totally a lassie character, right? It's completely sentimental. But for some reason, I it, it worked, which, again, I'm not... I usually hate that kind of stuff. So Big Steve's the best, and he's yeah. a total badass. He kills wolves, which is always cool. 
Top top ten um, dogs in fiction. Although, have you read Snow Crash? Just quick aside. I haven't. No, I okay. haven't. Well, I don't want to spoil anything, but the dog in Snow Crash is really, really good. So I know um, I I, have to, I need to read more. That's, that's Neil Stevenson, right? I got to yeah. read a lot more of him. It's the only Stevenson I've read, so I can't. You okay. Know, um, but the dog in Snow Crash is the best part of Snow Crash, and uh, so I was thinking about that. Let's talk about so who. Um. Okay. So let's let's talk about. So I also I I have actually on my best and worst characters. We actually during our problematic PC concern discussion, we actually didn't bring up Tom Cullen. Um, yeah, and and may, he might belong in that discussion as far as like people refer to him as slow or mentally retarded. He's clearly got some kind of learning disability and and so forth, so on. But I think he also risks some weirdnesses where it's like um, it's sort of the, the 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 cliche of like oh the touched child who's like you know he's slow mentally so he sees angels. Do you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. sort of a sentimental cliche in religious fiction for sure. Or like, honestly, it plays into sometimes a thing where like, you know, like, um, I, you know, I, I know a few people, you know, who, uh, like they have, you know, Down syndrome siblings or Down syndrome kids. And there's this real annoying trope of like, they're such sweet angels, right? Which is hard because like, yes, they're people who are nice, but it, it's a weird way of reducing their humanity, if that yeah. makes sense. No, exactly. Um, so they, they become, instead of being... And you're trying to say these people with Down syndrome are, you know, they're rewarding to have as children or whatever. And your your goal is to try to to make some sort of point about their value as humanity, but you end up reducing them to a caricature. When the truth is that a lot of them are nice a lot of the time, but they're people, so sometimes they're yeah, not. they're and... they're grumpy. They yeah, <laughs> they get mad at you. They have bad mornings. They're people, you know. Yeah. So I so I, I think Tom Collin, I ended up. I mean, I th- I thought it was interesting because he has sort of this weird like he's. He has sort of this weird arc where he's actually another person who basically accomplishes nothing by by being a spy, right? But he does save Stu. He does basically circle back to save Stu. And I just, I don't know, I thought he was a weird character because I I couldn't actually decide. So I saw some of the problematic stuff and I was was not sure what I thought about that. But I also wasn't sure that he's such, like, he kind of has this weird way in which he grows. Do you know what I mean? Like, the book and the narrator kind of imply that he actually you know he's more competent and he's more self-assured and that like he's not he's not he's not lost his learning disabilities or whatever he has but that by being treated like a person in both boulder and in las vegas he sort of has gained this agency that he was denied in his previous life does that make sense yeah it does he's definitely i don't know i I suspect there's a lot of legit critiques to be made about him and a disability rights perspective but he's a lot more complicated than like nadine you know like there's there's yeah that's what i'm getting at yeah, because you're right. There, he starts to become more of a person, well, not not more of a person, but more of a, an agent, I guess, once he's treated like a person by his, his friends. At the same time, he also, you know, has to get help from Nick's ghost, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and that's, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, let's, okay, let's actually transition to Nick. Because I think Nick early on is a great character, um, right? He's, he's mute and he's deaf, right? Um uh, oh, is that right? He's both. Yes, he's um, both deaf and mute. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't. I, that's so. So he's deaf and mute, and he is. He actually, I think. So I think you're right. I think in the end, Stu Redman is the most straightforward hero that the book wants us to think about as hero. But early on, I actually think Nick is the most straightforward hero as far yeah. as like, you know, he kind of takes over for the sheriff of a town, and he survives this beating, and he survives a second beating, and you know, he becomes the de facto leader who's like the de facto political leader, I guess, in Boulder. Yeah. Like, Mother Abigail is still a spiritual leader, but he's, like, the guy who has all the ideas. 
Um, but I, I thought, I actually, I think the second half really let him down because... Um, well, he just vanishes. Some, he doesn't get a well, point of view chapter ever again, I think. After that's what I mean. And so yeah. it's it's so frustrating because um, I really was, I would, like he has this, you know, he finds Tom Cullen. They have a run-in with possibly the, you know, Randall Flagg controlling a tornado. Again, who knows? Yeah. And they, they have all these crazy adventures. And then we get to the place where he's the leader. And like, again, I think maybe Stephen King's trying to do something smart as far as like, we're finally seeing Nick from the outside. But once again, he looks the exact same from the outside as he did from his own point of view chapters. And so at the very least, I wanted more point of view chapters, right? Because he was a point of view I liked. And then Stephen King kills him. Yeah. He just, you know, like that's just one. Of, and but, like, but it was frustrating because the moment that he dies, I thought it was powerful as far as like Nick looked in the closet and knew there was a bomb. He knew it. I thought that was weirdly powerful. But the his loss of life because the book had already just you know thrown him away. I, I just didn't. It wasn't as big of a deal to be honest. Like yeah, it, w- I, it would have been a bigger deal if Stu or Franny or Larry had died because we were still caring about them. No, that's exactly right. Like. Presumably King was trying to shock us, but like, yeah, I mean, anybody, anything can happen. And it was surprising when Nick died. But also, I realized we hadn't heard from him in a while. Like, he was just yeah. also at these town meetings. Um, and so I think you're right. It would have been a lot more of a compelling sort of, you know, oh, turns out I will kill my main character, you know, George R. R. Martin thing, if he was the main character for the last while. Yeah, I basically thought, I mean, I thought if Stephen King could have achieved what he wanted to achieve, he should have killed Stu. Yeah. And uh, and and then Nick's point of view should have come back. Like that would I think that would have been really interesting that like Nick, that Nick kind of was in a status quo because he things were going his way, right? He was having his way and then after someone else died, if he had come back with his own perspective, I think he would have been like he would have had all these obstacles to overcome. Um, but that's that's fine. I mean it was it was still I mean I still enjoyed I still enjoyed the denouement overall. I just thought, I just thought, you know, I, I, in some ways, I thought Stephen King didn't know how to end the book, and so he just sort of keeps killing people. <laughs> so here's a weird thing about this book: your first, so it's it's divided into three, I think they're called books, but three parts, right? And the first yeah. book is about the plague. The second book is about Boulder uh, trying to figure out how to be a town and what they're going to do about the devil out west. And the third book is about Las Vegas and what happens there, right? But what's weird right. is. At the start of the third book, the point of view switches entirely over to people over the mountains for a very long time. Um, and so suddenly we're learning about the politics of Las Vegas and, you know, we're getting chapters from Randall Flagg's perspective, which I guess we'd gotten one back at the beginning of the book. But yeah, um, I don't, did you think that was interesting? I didn't. I realized that I, we had spent so little time learning about Vegas and the, the politics of the state he'd built, aside from like that one trash can man chapter that I realized I just didn't care anymore because I knew it was all over. You know what I mean? Like, they describe it, his control weakening. They describe his control loosening. And it's like, yeah, but I never saw it when it was... You know what I mean? Like, this doesn't mean anything to me because I I never really saw this as a functional society. I I, I honestly think this book, as far as plot-wise, its biggest problems are definitely on the back end. And I I, I think it's... You said it well... So a little, a little like how I didn't care as much about Nick because I hadn't I hadn't heard from Nick in a while. The idea that the you know that the Randall Flag Paradise and City is deteriorating, it didn't resonate at all because I, I actually thought it was a bit um, pathetic. You know, it was almost anticlimactic in the sense of like, 
Like, what was the stand that they took? Do you mean, like, yeah. what's the actual stand that anyone took against him? Mother Abigail died. He starts to unravel. And then is if they hadn't gone to Las Vegas, Trash Can Man... I mean, again, you can argue about the ball of fire in the air, but he potentially still blows them up with the nuclear warhead. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, so I don't... I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think the implication is that it wouldn't have happened in quite the same way without the public right. execution. Right. Um, no, and, and, I, and, I, I, and there's enough causality there that I, I get why they like they were there so that the hand of God could turn against him or whatever, like the ball of fire that you yeah. know Randall Flag produces. It just, but it, it just seemed like there's there he really he lost control of the cause and effect of the plot, and then he kept trying to fill it on the back end. So like there's all, so trash can man, who is a character who's like weirdly important to the story, who we don't meet until part of the way through the book, and we we don't see again forever. He causes all of all of these these issues for Las Vegas, right? So a lot of the yeah. deterioration of Randall Flagg's powers are embodied by Trash Can Man's basically small rebellion or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. And yet we, we we don't even get to see that from someone else's perspective. We have a secondary a tertiary character tell a secondary character about what happened in retrospect. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the weakest way to find out anything active. And then what's worse is Stephen King, after we already hear what happens, he goes back and tries to show it in a flashback through Trash Can Man's perspective. But by yeah. then, like, I, I don't care. I don't care at all because the causal links have already been displaced. And even worse, like, I wasn't made to care about Trash Can Man at any point before that. So his whole quest to please Randall Flagg it's already, you know, I don't know. It's already played out by that point. Does that make sense? I just felt like he, he just, he lost, he lost control of how things were related and where they should be put in to make their relationship clear to the reader, I thought. No, that makes sense. I thought, I liked the first Trash Can Man chapter a lot when he's just wandering around I did blowing, too, actually. blowing up oil, oil tankers in the Midwest. No, that was pretty good. Um, I didn't, I didn't really understand the whole sequence with the kid. Uh, which was definitely oh, is gosh, one of the chapters yeah. that was not in the original book. I, I did look that up because it feels so. So Trashcan Man is a. Uh, he's also mentally disabled, although it, that may be more because he was uh, uh, given too much electroshock therapy and less because of uh, anything inherent to him. Uh, but he's got this kind of second. He's kind of a pyromaniac, but he's got this kind of like sixth sense where he can seek out like military materiel. Uh, you know, flamethrowers and and eventually a nuclear warhead and stuff like that. But he's kind of wandering across the country looking for uh, Randall Flagg because he has the dreams that everyone has. And Flagg's calling to him and saying, you know, I will use you as, as artillery. Uh, and he gets picked up by this, like, greaser, like, I don't even know, like, rockabilly kid who is <laughs> got a car he's really proud of. And he drives it way too fast and drinks Coors Light while he's driving and has all these annoying catchphrases. Like, yeah. And it's just the most comic book like character in the whole thing. Because even the Trash Can Man is kind of a kind of an odd stylized character, but we spend enough time in his brain that I sort of get how he got the way he did and why right. he thinks things. But then there's this whole chapter which just boils down to the kid shows up sort of kidnaps the Trash Can Man, takes him west, treats him just terribly, which we won't go into, but like treats him terribly. And then gets killed by wolves. <laughs> and Stephen King, let's get let's just be honest. Stephen King loves his catchphrases. He loves yes, characters he having catchphrases. Like so, Lloyd is the right hand man of Randall Flagg, and we see we meet Lloyd before the plague or while the plague is happening. Basically, 
and he's on like a killing spree with his partner who's called uh poke i think and yeah, poke, first members, poke, yeah poke keeps sh- shooting people and being like ah, i pokerized them i pokerized that and like that it was it was funny the first time but at, by the end of it it was like what what am i reading like why is the what word pokerize like what is, is this like a 1960s sitcom where like the bad guys all say the same thing so you know they're the bad guy and the good guys all say the same, you know it's like it's almost like full house like uh cut it out it was so cheesy um but also the problem is i think the the, the really annoying part with stephen king is like again you can indict him for that kind of stuff where he sometimes I think he takes these shortcuts with dialogue. But actually I I think sometimes his dialogue is one of the best parts of his writing. You know, I think um uh I actually have this quote that I pulled up um to try and I found writers who like commented on Stephen King who like him, mostly in a lit hub article. Um but Tom Parada, Syracuse grad by the way, I think, MFA, um, who's kind of a big writer he uh he has his, so his quote is I admire Stephen King not primarily for being our foremost writer of horror and suspense though he is that but as an artist of colloquial English a master storyteller whose voice is so natural and unaffected that it seems to be coming from deep in our collective unconscious the wellspring of small town middle America and I do think again and again and again everyone who praises Stephen King they come back to this this point right so like um a writer who I sometimes really hate um but who I think said it well named Matthew Walther, um, he talks about, you know, uh, if M.R. James had been an underpaid English teacher living with his wife and children in a trailer instead of the provost of Eton College, the stories in Night Shift are the kind of thing he would have written, right? So I do think that there's a way in which Stephen King gets to the heart of small town Americana partly through dialogue. I just think like everything else, like he just doesn't know when to leave well enough alone, right? He just needed an editor to keep saying, cut, cut this part. You use poker eyes four times too many. Cut it, you know? I think that's right. You know, the book is too long. Um, and it's sort of weird because it was shorter and then he felt like it needed to be longer and now people like the longer version better. And I don't know what that means. I haven't read the shorter version. <laughs> I'm not likely to. I could see how this book needs to be big. Like, I don't think this yeah. would have worked as a short book. And I do think Agreed. it was sort of standard paperback novel size the first time around. So I get why he felt the desire to re- reinstate stuff. But... It's too big. Like, I like a lot of the town council meetings where they try to decide how to rebuild America because that's the sort of thing I think about, but there's probably too much of that. Um, I didn't really like the military stuff, to be honest. I thought, so that, and actually, this yeah, gets to my, I forgot about that I was gonna say, so long ago. Yeah, so then this actually ties into what I wanted to talk about a little bit with this book being written in 1978 um, because I do think that there is this assumption on how the government is evil that was very 1970s post Nixon. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so like the way that like, like, and like that everyone like that, like, cause I, I found it on So I, I'm one of those people who I think, yes, I think, you know, governments can be very bad, usually from incompetence and not malevolence. Although right now, who knows? And during, you know, various times, who knows? Like there's, you know, America has been doing coups across the world since goodness, in the 1910s at least. Um, but all to say is that I found it deeply unlikely that the conspiracy to not admit to the flu virus would play out like he thought it would play out. You know what I mean? Like the fact that like we're having black ops teams go in and eliminate entire towns, I think some of that stuff would happen. 
But once again, I just felt like if he's going to give me this many scenes of military point of view, I needed at some point to see a different mindset from one of the characters, right? I needed to see someone yeah. who was... And, and he get, you know, he gives us a few moments of like, you know, after like a DJ, um, a radio DJ gets yeah. shot by an officer, there's a private who's like, where are, you know, they, they kill their officer. Like there's, he's, he, he does try to complicate it at times. But I just, there was so much about the military. But weirdly, like... I actually don't think we saw a ton of society deteriorating. Do you know what I mean? Like, so like Larry Underwood's a good example. Like one chapter he's living in New York, and it felt like the next chapter it's a ghost town. Do you know what I mean? Like, but there's there's an in between to that. If nothing else, there's an in between of like bodies and other stuff happening. And Stephen King tends to he for for the deterioration of America, he tended to zoom out and say like all these bad things happened, and then he would zoom back in. And I thought that was effective. Like the chapter eight that you talked about, I thought it was effective at times, but I kind of wanted to see the deterioration from a point of view for a little longer, right? So like, I just thought like like, like Franny's in a gunkwit, and they uh they 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 vote to like basically bar the town, so no like quarantine the town from yeah. the rest of the state, but like so we we hear about that, but like like what's Franny going through? Like you know what I mean? Like besides her father and stuff, like I just feel like there's other points between her father dying and meeting Harold that we just like nothing. It's, it's just, it's everyone's alive and then it's post-apocalyptic. There was, I thought not enough deterioration. Does that make sense? Is that wrong? It does. No, I, I hear that. I think, um, you know, part of his desire is for his main characters to not be important people before the, you know, before the, that's true. Before the plague, that's true. and so he wouldn't have a lot of point of view characters. Like he doesn't want the president to be one of the people who survives the plague. You know, but at the same yeah. time, we do get a lot of chapters from the perspective of military functionaries who then vanish. Um, and I would have <laughs> yeah. liked to see. I mean, look. Okay, so the American government's done a lot of terrible things. So I'm not saying that the American military wouldn't necessarily choose to, you know, cover up the thing, even though there was nothing to be done about it, and spread the virus to Russia. I think they deliberately launched some warheads <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. I'm not saying that wouldn't end up happening, but I'm saying there would be some debate amongst the brass, right? This isn't yes. like one colonel somewhere making this decision and everyone else being like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. There would be, like, a scuffle. So I wanted well, to see, I... like, a coup or something. Because I would, I, w- I could believe a coup, where, like, this one colonel is like, yes. nope, and just the military is not prepared for this internal fight, and so they lose control. Uh, that would have been believable, but as it was, it was just this like one. I forget his rank, but he's not like like a five star general or whatever. Basically, being like, we're gonna cover it all up. We're gonna pretend it's a universal problem, and we're gonna kill reporters. And everyone's like, well, yep. so, and that's also what I thought was a little far fetched. Was <laughs> far fetched? I'm all about you know a, a, a demon and a 108 year old prophet, but um, <laughs> but the problem is rules of the world have to be consistent. I think if you're going to present rules, they have to be consistent. And I even so, I, I know the book is in 1978 originally, and then 1990. So I get that information distribution is different. But I, I, but like local news, newsletters, like there's always been an outlet that I feel like is is not centralized, and so it's very it's very difficult for me to believe. And he kind of talks about some of that, like the radio DJ and some of the news reporters are trying to get the information out. But I like one of the newsrooms he talks about, like they're all gagged and bound by the military. I just don't think the military, especially who don't because they don't run any operations in America. I find it super unlikely that they would be organized enough to actually go across the entire country and gag every local news station. Yeah. The, and the problem is, is that once a local news station gets it out, 
it's going to be picked up by some national. I just, I just, I don't think I, the information suppression. I thought that was a bit of a 1970s fantasy in some ways. Does that make sense? Like that, that the government has enough competency to actually take over. Because now, I mean, I think the government actually has way more information suppression capabilities now. It's just, it's really hard to, I think, actually, it's, unless you have a closed system, it's really hard to cut off all leaks. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thought a lot of that stuff was the weakest part of the book, and it was presumably in there so that the plague could happen, so that you didn't have to... Yeah, of course. You know, because there's other ways that a functional government that wasn't trying to cover it up might have been able to, you know, hide people in bunkers or something, and so that's, that's presumably Stephen King's way of trying to get all that out of the way, and so I understood it as, like, a functional device. But frankly, if that was the case, then I shouldn't have seen it from their perspective at all. It should have <laughs> right. just like, been, is... as it was, we saw people making choices, but the choices were never questioned by the other people in the room. <laughs> Again, I was like, look, I'm not always, like, I got a lot of critiques to be made about the American military <laughs> or whatever, but yeah. I don't think nobody would have objected to this. <laughs> and I've, I've kind of rep- represented this view. I think there's really good, legitimate, critical reasons to question Stephen King as like a masterful storyteller or a master prose writer. I think this is not always true, but like uh, there's a writer I like a lot who talks about Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And she says, you know, Spielberg has a way of making us feel as if we've grappled with something complicated, minus the part where we've been implicated, challenged, or threatened. Spielberg relies way too much on the sentimental, given the topic, and on narrative puzzles that seem solvable rather than irresolvable or resolvable in a deeply complicated way. And I think, first of all, how dare you? Spielberg's an American treasurer who is the genius. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Second of all, though, I think Stephen King could probably be lumped into that, where, like, I think that he is doing something technically that other writers are better at, right? But all that to say, I... I still think deep down the reason most people don't like Stephen King is pure and simple snobbery. There's a demon in this book. How can this book be serious? Um, yeah. And I and I think that's that's why I feel like I have deep criticisms of, of Stephen King. But like a writer I know, um, you know, we, we talked about um, The Unconsoled by Ishiguro last time or two times ago, whenever it was. Um, and uh, so he wrote a book that was about, you know, Arthurian England or post-Arthurian England and it has a dragon in it. And I mentioned it at one time to a, a writer I really respected and who was like kind of a buddy. And he was, and I was like, yeah, I was like, can you believe he put a dragon on his last book? That's crazy. And the writer without blinking was like, yeah, talk about pandering, am I right? <laughs> I was like, what? why? Why is that? So I, I don't know. I just wanted to ask you what you thought as far as like, how much do you think it's that people just don't want to talk about prophets, demons, and so forth as being serious, that Stephen King is dismissed. Well, so I'm not nearly as hooked into, like, the literary fiction scene as you are. Like, I haven't read a lot of recent literary fiction. I, I, I've been working on that. I just read Zadie Smith's White Teeth uh, yesterday. I just finished it. Um, and that's an interesting book uh, for a lot of reasons. But I think... Okay, here's my, 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 my view, my guess on it, right? There's a lot of really terrible science fiction out there. Yeah. Um... And, like, genre fiction in general. Like, really bad stuff, which is bad prose, bad characters, bad politics, bad everything, right? Um, And I think a lot of sort of smart people encountered some of that at some point and said, well, this is what this genre is, right? Um, And assume that, therefore, anything which does have dragons or spaceships or prophets is that kind of quality. But the problem is there's a lot of really bad literary fiction out there, too. And nobody ever assumes that that's representative of that genre right like there's a lot of really bad hacky stuff trying to 
tell us the real nature of the American marriage or whatever that is just garbage. Um, but that that doesn't get taken for like rep- representing the entire genre. You know, nobody tars. You know, again, I don't know who the, you know, Zadie Smith or whatever because I just read her. So that's what I'm thinking of with that brush. Um, and so I think that's one instinct. Um, people don't realize that Sturgeon's Law applies everywhere. It's like, <laughs> of course, most science fiction is bad. That's because most everything is bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I used to get really work mad about this, the sort of uh, ghettoization of genre fiction, as it was called. That was a big debate for a long time. But I've realized two things. One, it's not worth getting mad about because none of those people care what I think. And I don't really care what they think. And two, it's over. Um, that fight is actually over. If you look at, like, you know, Kazuo Ishiguro wrote a dystopian science fiction book and a book about Arthurian fantasy. You know, a lot of your great filmmakers and um, writers these days either openly acknowledge how important a genre fiction was to them or are actively making genre fiction works themselves. You know, a lot of the most important filmmakers of the day are using genre tropes, right? Like, or, or genre movie. Like, you know, Get Out is a horror movie, yeah. right? You know, the movie that won Best Picture was The Shape of Water, which is about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and so I think this fight is is dying. Um, and I think probably Stephen King will actually be better thought of in sort of the Academy going forward, if I had to guess, because it will be people who grew up reading Stephen King books. Yeah. And they won't say that he's the most important writer, like the best writer, but they will acknowledge his import and why he matters and why genre stuff matters as a whole. And well, I don't know, because my, my final point is there's a lot of really good books with spaceships and dragons in them that are really, really, really good. And if you sort of dismiss that whole operation because you're just snobs, then you're the one who's suffering for that because people are still going to read the books with the spaceships and the dragons. And uh, so you don't matter. And (laughs) that's a shame. (laughs) Well, and I I think I want to come back to this. So I I really like this, this definition that I read about, you know, I think that a lot of times um, if something is considered serious, it's because it implicates or challenges the reader. And I, I think that is, I actually do think that is still a good way to define a lot of really excellent fiction. So, like, I just read one of my favorite books I read this year was The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. I read it twice because I, re- I, I liked it so much. It's a very thin book about, yeah. you know, these five or six girls growing up in, um, you know, in Edinburgh uh, back pre-World War II. And so the book is so smart because it has a primary girl it's interested in, but of course the the subject for even the girls of the book is basically, you know, Miss Jean Brody, this teacher who inspires these girls, initially at least. And so the book is, I think, really intelligent in the ways that it reveals how Miss Jean Brody also corrupts or disturbs the girls, you know, like how she leads them astray in some ways. And so what it does, and it does, okay, it does way more than this, but to make it very reductive, it basically allows you, like the girls, to admire her initially, and then through a series of moves, it complicates that admiration without ever removing, essentially, how she is still charming and enjoyable, right? And yeah. so what it does, if you're paying attention, which, it, you know, it's a short book, it's hard not to, um, it, 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 you mimic not just the characters, you have, as a reader, you have your own sort of kind of process of like, shoot, I, I, like, she's basically this little fascist, funny spinster Edinburgh woman who's a hypocrite who is totally inspiring, you know? So, like, what does that say about inspiration? Sure, but what does it say about my understanding of what's inspiring or what's good or what's in, you know what I mean? And so I feel like, and I do think Stephen King falls short on that overall from what I read of this book. I should say the stand falls short on that. But 
I just I keep wanting to counterpunch because and I'll open this up to you. Sorry to just monologue because I so I think his interest in writing a certain Lord of the Rings post-apocalyptic American epic gives us a hint for how we should be thinking about art because I don't think Lord of the Rings challenges me in the way that Miss Jean Brody did, but I actually think see uh, uh, Tolkien. I keep trying to say C.S. Lewis. I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> I think Tolkien is one of the few writers that I've read who is so, so good at making the good interesting that there is an inspirational or an aspirational or a, it still challenges me, but maybe in a positive sense. And I, I think that arguably is what Stephen King is going for, right? That he's trying to shore up the idea of morality or of, or of shore up some value, not to challenge the reader to be self-critical, but to maybe say, like, look, here at its essence is how America can still come together or something. Does that, I mean, am I, am I just, is that too far off the, re the re reservation? No, I understand what you're saying. You know, maybe not all fiction needs to make the reader be self-critical. Sometimes it can present sort of, I don't like inspiration because it's such a weak word. I know. Like, ideal, like, like this, this is like goals, you know? I think, I think that's right. I think art can do a lot of different kinds of things. And I think one of the problems that we get with some of these debates between genres or art forms is when we mistake the things we, we take one thing that art can do very well. And we say, this is what art does. You know, this all art does this. And so when it doesn't do that, it's bad. And that seems to me to be silly. Like there's a lot of different tools in fiction. Why would they all be used for the same purpose? You know, like there's nothing wrong with a book necessarily, which doesn't try to do exactly that level of implication. And maybe it still has value. I, I don't know. Well, sort of... I, yeah, but I guess, I'm, I mean, I guess, I'm, so what, I think what's hard for me is that I, I, I do think that there is something, like, I guess that I, I'm of the opinion that there are, uh, if not better and worse, higher and lesser values to art. So, like, I, I do think Miss, Prime and Miss Jean Brody, I think it is serving a higher function than, um, you know, like uh, Raymond Chandler novels for the most. I, mean, I love Raymond Chandler. I think that some some of his books probably have challenged me in ways that I'm underselling. There's basically there's basically a utilitarian approach to fiction that I think is good overall, right? Books are for pleasure. They're for reading. Reading a book because it's comfortable. That's not bad. We should stop making that sound like it's bad, right? Um, I liked that Stephen King's book was so long, partly because it was enjoyable just to keep reading about people who I was finding mostly interesting, right? From like a narrative, critical perspective, was it too long? Yeah, but it was fun. It was really fun to have a yeah. book this big, like you said, that covered so many different people and perspectives and whatever. Um, and so I think, but I think what's hard for me is I get caught up in wanting to defend the basic pleasure of reading. That that, that is a reason enough alone for a book to be considered good. But I don't want to lose, if I was, I mean, making this into an ethical thing is dangerous, but, like, I do think there's a virtue ethics corollary where it's like, look, not all knives are supposed to cut the same things. And, yeah, scissors are great, but, like, if I'm supposed, like, if I'm trying to feed my family, like, maybe I need a butcher knife. And maybe a butcher knife is more valuable to society. I mean, I actually think scissors are. But you know what I mean? Like, and so I, 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 don't, I don't want to lose the argument that I, I think... Prime Mischine Brody will last in my consciousness and do more for me because of the kind of art it is. But I'm not saying it's, I don't, but it's hard because I don't want to minimize the books that I mostly read, which are mostly books like this. I know exactly what you mean. There are, there are movies and, and books that I've experienced that are more important to me, but they're not what I do 
like what I read on a daily basis. So I, you know, and uh, I don't know. It's such a tough set of questions. Like, what is the purpose of art is really what we're saying. And I don't think we're going to solve that on this podcast today. Well, Bill, um, I, that's where you're wrong, Bill. That's where you've undersold the podcast <laughs> art form. I don't, so sort of, to, sort of to your initial point, do I think people are only disliking Stephen King because of snobbery? Again, I don't know because I don't hang in these circles, right? Um, but I think probably there's a certain amount of snobbery because... Anytime you can get a group of really well-educated people in a room so they can go and crap all over something very popular, that's probably partly so that they can remind everyone else how very smart they are. Um, but sometimes it's because the popular thing is also very bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, so yeah. um, I think Stephen... I, again, I don't want to speak about Stephen King. This is a dangerous thing here because I've just read 1,100 words of Stephen or uh, pages of Stephen King, but I haven't read very much Stephen King, actually, because he's so prolific. Right. So restricting my comments to The Stand... I don't think this is a great book. I don't think this book deserves to be talked about the way some of the other really good books are talked about. I think this book is better than I thought it was going to be yeah. in a lot of respects. Um, and I can see he's really, he is clearly thinking a lot about his characters and what to do with them. And it's not a thoughtless book and it does do some really interesting things. Um, I think dismissing this book out of hand would be a mistake because I think there's value in it. I don't think it needs to be up there with, you know, a lot of the great works of the late 20th century. Um, so when people dismiss it, they might be being snobbish, but they're not entirely inaccurate, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's where I'm trying to land as well because I don't want to minimize the book or how much I even enjoyed it. But I, I mean, and, I, and that's actually what I think is a bummer is I, I do think that there are so many competing entertainment options that... I think in some ways this was like a good binge, right? This is a good this is a good AMC genre drama, right? And I, I do think that yeah. I do I do think that Prestige TV is probably the best corollary for Stephen King, um, because I I think that the very the very very best of it I think is a different level. Like The Wire is a different level, but like honestly, I mean the first couple of seasons of The Walking Dead that feels very comparable to me as far as like it was doing interesting yeah. character work in an interesting world. Um, I stopped watching it after a while, but it seems, you know, it seems at, like as much as you can praise The Walking Dead, knowing what The Walking Dead is, you can praise Stephen King, and it shouldn't be a slight, it should, but it also, like, I know, it, it also shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse it with, yeah, Underworld by Don DeLillo or something, you know, or... Yeah, I don't know, I, just, I think it's, I think it's partly a category mistake, again, like I was trying to say. I think, you know, I can spend a lot of time, is The Unconsoled, what we read last time, is that a better book than The Stand? And I think the real <laughs> truth is that's a very silly question. Yeah. Like, I mean, probably, like, it probably is a better book than The Stand, but they're just not doing the same thing. Yeah, that's fair. And so, rather than trying to exalt one over the other, I'm more interested in just looking at the cool stuff each book does, or the bad stuff each book does, and learning there how to be a better writer, a better reader, and a better person. Yeah. And I'd rather do that than try to compare the two, I think. Yeah. No, I think I think, I think the question is only interesting to the extent that, um, to the extent that maybe we can talk about, um how to be more human, right? So like I said, like, like, I think being entertained is very human, but also being self-reflective is very human, right? And so I think if, if you're having like Jimmy Fallon versus The Wire, like they're both, maybe, again, they're not both worthwhile. Jimmy Fallon's not worthwhile, but um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, spoiler, yeah, sorry, uh, warning, bad opinion alert, but, um, but I do, so I think it's valuable to that extent, right? To the extent that like, what are we going to, um, as a society or as the people who read books, what are we going to prop up as saying, here's the height of something because it has some sort of reflection on what we value most, right? Like, 
I want to put money and words behind Prime and Mischief Brody because in a world of dying books, I don't want those books to ever go away. Um, but I, I just don't think it comes with this, like, it doesn't come with the clause I have to, you know, crap on the stand, which was a perfectly enjoyable book. The last thing I want to ask you, though, is this the most, like, Christian and conservative book that we're going to read for a long time? <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, so this is not a theology podcast, and I don't, I'm certainly not equipped to really do a theology debate here. Um, I know just enough to get myself into very deep trouble yeah, and annoy same. all of my theologian friends, so I'm not gonna. But at the end of the preface I have, he refers to it as a work of dark Christianity. You know, the book is pretty explicit about the fact that the Christian God is speaking through Mother Abigail. Right to do these good things right like it's it's pretty it's pretty clear that this is a book in which you know uh the father the son and the holy ghost are, are doing things um and that's not what i expected <laughs> same um and i don't know i think getting into a long discussion about how whether this book has any idea what to do with its christianity would be a worthwhile conversation for two people more versed in theology to have um there were parts of it that I thought were really like, I liked that mother Abigail was punished for being prideful and was not allowed into the promised land. Like Moses, I actually, right. that was pretty, pretty insightful. Um, but also, I don't know if, I don't know, like well, the theology so, of the book with the, the demon and then the nuclear bomb at the end. And I'm just not sure about it. So is it the most conservative and Christian book we're going to read for a while? Probably because <laughs> that's, you know, that's, yeah. that's, I don't, I don't see what we're going to read that would beat that for a while. Well, so he, here's, but... here's what I respected as, as, you know, I think you and I come from mostly similar backgrounds, um, you know, churched youth and so forth. Um, and so I, what I actually appreciated about the book, I mean, what I also like bugged me because I think it plays into some of its worst instincts, but, um, so we'll talk about the Christian part first and the conservative part. So I think the Christian argument <laughs> is actually the same argument for why Harry Potter is a super Christian book, right? Um, yeah. So the seventh book in Harry Potter, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. I don't know if that matters. <laughs> um, so the way that Harry finally defeats, I mean, there's still a last battle, um, but the way that he really defeats Voldemort is by sacrificing himself, right? That the, the that that's the final act of love and heroism is to give your life so that others may live, and I think that the stand explicitly has that in it, right? That like the, yeah. the and then that's why like I, I, the the ending annoyed me because he I don't I don't think he handled the revelations and the causation as well as I was hoping based on how well he handled stuff earlier, but the idea that these three people that they basically have to go and die for uh, Randall Flagg to be defeated, I, I thought that was compelling as far as, like, if he's writing in a Christian world, that's the most compelling part of Christian, you know, theology, is that God comes to Earth incarnated, and the way that he defeats is dies. The part that it's missing, and that Harry Potter has, is that, of course, Christ comes back to life. And so I do think where it gets really murky as far as a book of dark Christianity is it seems to have a lot of fun with mysticism and with certain gestures to, like you said, like the you know another Abigail kind of apes um, Moses's journey and the three sacrificial lambs they sort of ape Christ's journey, right? That's all really good, but there 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 is this this murkiness which I think makes the book intelligent because yeah we think it's Mother Abigail, you know, talking with the Christian God, but no one else talks to God. 
You know what I mean? Like it's it's how yeah. it's how people would have actually experienced. Well, Tom Cullen does. Oh yeah, right. Sorry, Tom, Tom Cullen. Cullen. Yeah, Tom. Yeah. What is it? Uh, God's Tom Cullen? Is that? I'm God's Tom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I can just someday be God's Joel, that's all. You know, just this, <laughs> just a guy with a mission. But um, no. But so 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 yeah, you're right. Tom Cullen's an exception. And so is the the little boy who, whose name we've both forgotten. Um, but it's, well, his name is actually Leo, but they call him Joe the whole time. Yeah, um, so he has some kind of so supernatural sense as well. Prophecy or something. Yeah. But the main characters, the main characters who we see their point of view, with minus Mother Abigail for part of it, I mean, they don't know, right? They're experiencing a, a prophet as probably a prophet would be experienced, which has as confusion and curiosity, right? And maybe faith as well, but faith based on someone else's maybe faith in some ways because the dream stuff they all think is psychic you know what I mean like it can be excused I don't yeah. know that's why all I'm saying is that I think he his intelligence is that he makes it really Christian but he actually he, it's so nebulous like it's still sort of a weak mysticism you know what I mean which in, in some ways is annoying theologically like it's not as interesting as him committing in some ways but he commits to such a point that he has to undercut it and I think that's really smart yeah I think that makes sense and, and as for the book's conservatism it does you know at the end we have Stu and Franny wondering if human society is always going to fall apart because you have they're trying to arm the police in Boulder now. Right. And of course the very last chapter is Randall Flagg teleporting across the universe to across the world to meet a bunch of like brown skinned savages in the Again, because yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah. Um and he's gonna bring them civilization and so evil can never be fully defeated, which is of course a very conservative point that human nature is unchangeable and society cannot be perfected and so on. So I mean, it is it is definitely a pretty conservative book in that in that well, and I was just C sense. Yeah, and I was I guess I was just really surprised at how I mean, because Stephen King is so widely beloved, and most people I know who love him, like you know, they don't fall into this camp of sympathetic to Christianity or to conservatism of, of any kind, right? And so I think it's actually it's sort of a testament to how maybe how good he is as a writer because so the the scene with Franny. Which we, we, we talked about earlier when she's talking with her dad about abortion. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, it was the first time that a character um, who I'm supposed to respect in a book defends like a pro-life position. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think, yeah. again, I think narratively, I think that's so smart because the stuff that's, you know, the stuff that like uh, you want to play against type as much as possible. You know what I mean? So like, I think a lot of books are coming out right now um, about women's rights that are super uh, interesting, like Sheila Hetty's motherhood and other stuff. That's you know, um, I think it's motherhood. Hope I didn't mess that up. But like, um, yeah. But I think Stephen King in that scene does something harder, which is he has Franny totally keep her agency. Like she doesn't lose the option of abortion. She's not going to put that to the side just because the father she respects is saying don't do it. But also the man telling her not not, not to do it. Like he's worth listening to as far as someone she trusts. Does that make sense? And um, yeah, and I, I think and I think I think it was kind of ballsy for him to do that. But I also think again, like I'm I was kind of surprised that like that's not something you see anywhere in fiction right now. And I think the lack of uh, compelling conservative viewpoint sometimes makes a few of these books less like they're just like uh, like Exit West, this book that came out that everyone loved. It's a smart book, but it sort of feels like just this liberal, you know, uh, self-congratulation. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not as interesting because it's lacking points of views. Well, that's definitely... So, so first of all, I wonder if that position uh, with with the father would have been as unusual in 1978. True. Um, I'm not, I, I think we might be 
goofing at the time a bit there because I'm, I'm not sure. No, I have no idea. Yeah, it, my it, guess is popular fiction in the late 70s has a lot more uh, sort of respectable pro-life people in it, right? It, that's probably uh, true. I guess I'm just surprised that like this continues to be a book recommended. You know I mean like it's not it's, yeah. it's not a, a deal breaker for a lot of people who, if it was written now, it would be a deal breaker. Yeah, that might be true. I don't know. I I do think there's something to this though. This this notion of sort of um, a lack of conservative viewpoints in media that let me be, I want to be very careful here. Yeah. I'm not talking about like news media. I'm talking about books and movies that pretend or purport to show a conservative viewpoint, but clearly don't understand it at all. Right. Um, I'm thinking of like it's like Bioshock Infinite, right? Which is a very pretty game that is gibberish for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, th- there's a million reasons to attack the game. Uh, it ends up equating the horrible, oppressive, you know, white nationalists and the sort of quasi-communist rebellion. Like, oh, they're just as bad. Like, well, no, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> that's that's not that they're not. Yeah. Uh, not not with what the book, not with what you see in the video game, not in general. But one of the things about it is it's allegedly this video game about this sort of dystopia run by these sort of white nationalists, fundamentalist Christians who revere the founding fathers as prophets and you know ape a lot of sort of millennialist so not millennial but like the end of the world is coming kind of rhetoric and it's very clear that nobody on the writing team had ever even spoken to a conservative christian because you know? <laughs> yeah. it doesn't ring right at all you know i'm not a conservative christian by any means and i never really have been i certainly am not anymore but like i i know those people right yeah like I, i'm friends with a lot of those people i understand what they talk like and this isn't it um and it just makes the game feel very false and so i think if that's sort of the thing you're talking about, where like media will claim to, to art will try to claim to deal with these issues, but will never actually understand how the opposing side thinks, and so they can't portray it meaningfully, and so the fight just feels rigged from the beginning. It doesn't feel like it's trying to wrestle with this concept. It just feels like it's trying to score points for its side. Right. And uh, that's not unique to, to liberal or left perspectives. No. Everybody does this, but it is it makes work a lot weaker when you never understand why the sort of philosophically opposed position could think the way it does. Well, and I think it's especially difficult for stuff like fiction or any kind of narrative media because, so, and this is, you know, not everyone agrees with me on this point, but like, I I mean, I think so, because I'm not advocating for false equivalency here, right? I'm not saying that every point that has to be put forward should have a counterpoint just for the sake of a counterpoint. Um, yeah. It's not what you're saying either, but I think I think people get mad about false equivalency in rhetorical and expository situations where there's an argument going on and we feel like we have to like pay due diligence to some, you know, kind of like like basically the best example would be like if you bring up slavery in a classroom, you're not required to bring up arguments that are pro-slavery. That's not that's not that's not <laughs> yeah. you being neutral. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't like we're we're at a point now where some things are resolved or should be. And I'm okay with that overall with like, I think, you know, again, I think debate's really good, but false equivalency is a dangerous side effect of always saying debate's good. Um, yeah. But what I'm getting at though is for fiction, this, it comes back to our, our problem of the Nazi soldier. If you're going to write a book from a Nazi perspective, it just won't be good fiction if he's only evil. And so I think the same thing is true for like what we're talking about as far as like, um, you know, a book is not going to get, going to push past its own limits and, unless it has stuff that's internally creating some kind of tension. Um, and as far as yeah, I mean, so and I think I think Stephen King he does he does and doesn't do that, but he did it in ways that I thought were surprising, just because like most of the books I read, you know, that like this would never have like 
been an opportunity for a discussion and i thought it was interesting i thought it, it, it challenged me as far as like you know what you can get away with in fiction i guess if that makes sense it's such a hard book to talk about it's because it's huge and just because so long. it's well i don't know the things it does well it actually does quite well and i worry we've given some short shrift to those because it's more interesting to talk about the stuff he doesn't do as it's well true. because some of the stuff he does badly is so frustrating i know i want to go ahead and reiterate again that i hate the nadine <laughs> stuff i want to just i'm going to dwell on that too long i mean i'm not going to say anything new now but just like it's really bad it's so bad <laughs> no it is well and i and i think i think um i think what makes it hard too is that like uh um the book wants to be everything and he just doesn't know how to concentrate it on like on what it's good at you know what i mean like like, like so this franny and, and her father stuff i mean i just i don't understand like why there wasn't more of that going forward um even to the point where, like where I, when i think it, the book is conservative it's domestic right so it has this domestic ideal this yeah. heterosexual domestic ideal um and that's that's fine like that that could be an argument you have but like like you said the one kind of um, lesbian or bi character who would challenge some of these preconceptions of how we're sending the new society, like she's killed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she's yeah, taken. Yeah, but nevertheless, she's yeah, no, she's she's, yeah. she's totally she's totally venerated in a certain sense. But as far as like the societal rebuilding project goes, you know, that's not a voice we're hearing from. Um, and I and I think that would have challenged some of the bolder stuff, uh, and also again challenged it in a plot sense because. You know, if people weren't as, you know, at home with this kind of making a house gambit, maybe Franny has more to do, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, but I, so yeah, I, yeah, it was a, overall though, I mean, I think I enjoyed the read. Um, I think it was a, it was a pretty fun big read to do, to be honest. Well, I definitely cared about the characters by the end. Uh, you know, I was invested in what happened to them and I did a little reading. People really hate the like snowmobile section towards the end. Um, yeah. where you get like two chapters of, of Tom Cullen and uh, Stu Redman just kind of traversing the Rockies and having Christmas and stuff. And I guess a lot of people really hate that because it does kind of drive away from the, you know, the, the book is ending and it's just taking a long time to actually get to the end. But I really, I don't know, I like I like that too. I like that part actually. <laughs> as much as, you know, Tom is kind of problematic, but I still really cared about what happened to him Same. and Stu was really nice to him. And I was just like, this is, this is good. I like these people. I'm glad to spend more time with them, even as, you know, they live in kind of a weird, silly world. Um, I'm glad we did. Th I want us to do, I hope we keep doing this for a while, and I want us to not just do the sort of big literary classics. I want us to do stuff like this sometimes, you know? Yeah. I, I, think, it's, I think it's good both for context and just to change up the flavor, and also because that's a different thing. Like, The Unconsoled is, again, probably a better book, as silly as that is, but... I didn't care about the characters in the way I did about well, you know, no, Larry and, uh, and Franny and Judge Ferris. In a, lot, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think actually it's a very easy argument to say it's a much worse book, right? Like, he was really smart, and so it was a good book to talk about. But, I like, I I will recommend The Stand to some people. I have not recommended The Unconsoled to anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, yep. And so, no, so I think I definitely, and I definitely, yeah, and, and, I, and my interest in the artistic conversations, they're totally my own personal passion because i'm trying to write i'm trying to think about like what makes writing you know how do you push yourself to the highest levels of your own ability um but actually i think stephen king is good for that too because he does everything that's, that's the one thing that we probably didn't mention enough is even in this book i mean his range is kind of always the same voice which is a problem for me but like he writes about everything he has no fear yeah. and i do think at some point there is a threshold where it's quality is indicated by quantity 
You know what I mean? Like the fact that he had like so. I, I in this last week of reading about, up on him, you know, Tom Parada. I think it's Tom Parada says that um, the book of four short novellas called Different Seasons. He's like that's what I think is the best you know collection or Stephen King book, and it, and that includes Shawshank Redemption. Um, and then someone else was like, no, no, the best the best thing he wrote, which I quoted from him earlier. This guy Matthew Walther think it's uh it's it's Night Shift, the collection of short stories he did very early on. And the fact that two people who are mostly literary snobs think two different books of such vastly, you know, not, not even you know, variable. It's just like the, the range from Night Shift to different seasons, right? From like a prison drama to horror story. No one else is doing it that confidently. And that's, that's, yeah. that's impressive. That's really impressive that he's that fearless, I think. Well, that's one of the things I, I think I admire about him a lot. Um, you know, I... I I am not much of a writer, but I've been writing a lot recently. And, you know, most of my stuff is sort of genre stuff um, because that's where I live and what interests me most. But I want to have the freedom to write other things as well. And it's, if nothing else, encouraging to see that you can do that. Like, you, <laughs> there are people who have managed right. to have a successful writing career, writing horror stories, whatever the heck the stand is, because it's got horror moments in it, but I wouldn't call it a horror story exactly. And then also, you know, the Shawshank Redemption. Like, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah no, I agree. I, that's good to see that people can do that. Yeah, well, and it's also, I guess, the downside is that, like, I mean, I, you know who else? You know who else? I, a lot more people do this than I think I realize. So, like, I mean, Margaret Atwood, she's a decent poet. She's, like, a like a pretty legitimate poet. And, you know, not a lot of people know that because she's so well-known for her fiction. But she's a good poet. Or, like, Kingsley Amos, who I love, who's not as well-known. Um, he's best known for some kind of comic literary novels like The Old Devils or Lucky Jim. But I just read a book by him called The Green Man, which is a... A, a great cracker of a ghost story to be honest um and i so yeah i agree with you as far as like i, I think i used to always worry about what kind of writer i was going to be but I, I do think stephen king is good for just the confidence of like what your interests are don't matter you just you can't fake it you know you just have to kind of track yeah. after what you actually want to write about and try to elevate it through the you know the execution into something worth reading um and yeah, and I think The Stand was probably worth reading. I don't think everyone I know would like it, but I do think, again, like I said, I'll recommend it to more people than I've recommended most of the books we've read. Um, except for uh, the, the Worst Journey in the World, I loved that book. I keep telling people to read it, but... I keep... Okay, so I read it, and I was like, this was cool, but I can't stop thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, same. You know what I mean? Like, I... I I encounter stuff, on, and also I, I didn't realize, I guess, how important the Scott expedition was in like British consciousness. Right. I guess because like, so I read Francis Spufford's book on it. Um, there's the Francis Spufford noise. <laughs> get one. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, you know, uh, there's a comic book someone's doing, which is basically a comic adaptation or a graphic novel adaptation of the worst journey in the world. I, and I keep encountering all of this stuff, and I realized this that book stuck with me in a way I did not actually expect it would when I finished reading it. I finished reading it, and I said, this is a good book. I am very glad I read this. I will never think about it again, probably. And that has not been the case. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I had the same thing where I was like, this is a fun nonfiction. I, I, I loved learning about stuff I didn't know as much about. We had a good conversation. But I not only does it stick in my mind, like you're saying, but to echo your other point, I keep finding references to it. Like, um, yeah. like, I, wa like I, I didn't finish the episode, but I was watching part of uh, Case Histories, this, you know, um, PBS kind of British TV with Jason Isaacs about a detective, and he's, like, helping someone with their cat, and she's named the cat after Scott's cat, and they just casually refer to it. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Like, it really, like, you, like you said, anything British eventually mentions Scott at some point. He was such a big deal. 
But I also just think there was something about, you know, I mean, Spofford says it best in, the, in an essay that he excerpted from a different book he wrote, which is like, you know, it's basically the story of a guy who, at the age of 21, lost his two best friends, right? That they died yeah. and he didn't die. And so it's essentially a survivor's record of people he loved. And I, I actually do think that for all the technical and cool adventure stuff that happens, <laughs> that really stuck with me, you know, that he did something courageous and big and yet it like ruined his life. <laughs> so yeah, so that's an advertisement for our first episode. To... <laughs> first episode, yeah, which was pretty good and you can find on our SoundCloud. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bill, do you have anything else? Do you have any other tidbits like that aren't Stephen King related? Do you want to just talk about, like we usually do, a, I usually ask you random questions, but I don't have any this time. So if you do, no, I don't. I don't have anything like that. I, uh, you know, I. Uh, this was this was a book worth reading, and I'm glad we did it. But uh, I, boy, it took a long time to read. Uh, that's, <laughs> that, that's silly, but like I, I've been reading a lot more recently, and I did not read a lot of other books while I was reading The Stand. So I'm I, glad to move on to something else. I, um, I am do we, too. We know our next book, right? Yeah, yeah, we do. I think we're doing um, we're doing Rebecca West's. Yep. Black Lamb, Gray Falcon, or. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, which is her. Uh, it's it's also a brick. It's a two it's volume so book. Big. It's about eleven hundred pages long. Um, but it's it's her uh, nonfiction account of a bunch of travels through Yugoslavia right before the Second World War. Um, I don't know a ton about it except that it is always incredibly highly spoken of when people talk about it as one of the great like works of travel memoirs or there's a word for it that i can't come up with yeah but, no it's um, a, yeah. So i'm very excited it's a it's yeah i think i mean yeah so it's not only one of the great travel logs i mean i've, I've had people that i like a lot in print defended as like one of the important books bar none of the 20th century um i don't know i mean i, I know she was also a, a pretty well-regarded um novelist and I, I actually haven't read her novels either but I, i'm excited to get into that because i i do think um i, do, I don't know there's something about reading um well-written nonfiction that just it offers so many different things to talk about like the pre-world war ii yugoslavia i know nothing about that but i can't imagine like the fascist movement wasn't sweeping through parts of the country you yeah. know um so that'll be yeah that'll be something else to think about i'm excited to read that so yeah uh, rebecca west's black lamb and gray falcon i'll post a you know reminder on twitter and stuff if you want to read along with us again it is also a bajillion pages long so, so long. you'll you'll want to start oh that. i should not right away but i should i wanted to did i did i tell you how i mostly read this book i think i might have but i can't remember so i moved i think you yeah <laughs> i moved from syracuse new york to denver um basically right when i was reading this book and so the the drive with the truck that i had was closer to 30 hours of actual driving time and so i basically was like gripped in a in a certain position for 30 hours listening to this book and it was the best part was that like i was mimicking the journey of larry underwood <laughs> in a certain sense i guess that's right yeah you so, would have taken similar roads wouldn't you at some point <laughs> it was like really eerie at some points to be like like the way because he talks about new england and places that i was like kind of living near they're very similar to syracuse or places near syracuse as far as the woods and the lakes and how everyone acts and then moving to the flat open spaces and of course you and i both grew up in like spitting distance of boulder and so it was was crazy that like the destination of paradise is boulder which by the way is also a bummer because the last thing people who live in boulder need is a reason to feel good about themselves um <laughs> and so but no so i actually my experience reading this book was was really weird and unique but one one part that i loved is um like you mentioned how long it took to read 
I was like in like in a, almost like in a moving prison cell, like just forced to finish it. And it was so good because I think um, it helped me realize that like forward momentum or foreshadowing, whatever you want to call it, is a real skill. And Stephen King has it because actually, like I, yeah, I did want to keep listening to the book for basically the whole car ride, and it was. And that's, you know, that's like 17 hours one day. I basically listened to the book for like 17 hours straight one day almost. And it was, I mean, yeah. I can't do that with a lot of fiction, but I could do it with Stephen King. And that was, it was sort of a neat, um, a neat relationship that I won't forget. Even if, even if I forget all of the characters' names, except for, I, I think, uh, uh, Whitney and Big Steve. <laughs> Big Steve is the best part of the book. <laughs> Big Steve good, is so good. Good, 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 good dog, Good OJ. dog, good dog. Big Steve. <laughs> um, all right, well, anything else to, to add, Bill? No, I think that about wraps it up. Okay, well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, hopefully you will join us next time. Special thanks as always to my friends Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc. The track you heard at the beginning and end of this podcast is Water Song, performed by those two. They're currently using the band name Blossom Tones and have their own Instagram page. Most of their music can be found under Lily Jarvis on SoundCloud. They're a great duo. New episodes of this podcast should be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the usual places you find a podcast. If there's a place you use that we're not on, please let us know. As always, we welcome recommendations for new big reads and even small reads. We're hoping to get our next episode out sometime in December, probably, maybe earlier. We'll see. If you have any suggestions for the podcast, drop us a line on Twitter, or that's about it, actually. Probably just Twitter. Hopefully, the next episode will also include a rigorous but invisible outline. Thanks for listening.